This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Animal tooth made out of gold. You know what that means? Grab your comfy hotel robe and an Uzi, because we're headed to Chris Kyladone, the place where all lines of plot-related force within inherent vice converge. From Mickey's kidnapping to Mickey's millions. From Golden Fang the boat to the Golden Fang the fully fucking weird outfit that kills people. From the reprogramming of Burke's Dodger to the flight of Japonica Fenway. All of Inherent Vice's many plot threads tie in a nice little bow. Right here, where up is down and straight is hip. After your first viewing, you may not know what to make of Inherent Vice. Paul Thomas Anderson's seventh feature film and the first ever adaptation of literary giant Thomas Pinchon. And that's okay. For as much as Anderson claims to make films for the Saturday night crowd, he's really making them for the ages, and he's not afraid of leaving a few people behind to get there. That is today's guest in his review of a certain movie we all know and love and wrestle with and podcast about. And he's right. Anderson certainly seems, anyway, like a filmmaker who's okay with leaving a few folks behind, or in the case of Inherent Vice, a lot of folks behind, even if that's probably not his actual intention. And if there is one film in his filmography, one jewel in his crown that seems to confound, confuse, and outright concuss the brain pans of his audience more than any other, it's this one. So many people might get the mood, might get the characters, might get the milieu, but they always seem so pretzeled out of shape by the hazy, lazy, and herky-jerky plot. But, 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 I, I assure you now, as I have so many times before, that plot makes sense. It does indeed all Rubik's Cube together into a cohesive, narrative, thematic, and emotional whole. And in terms of plot, that very, very supposedly confusing plot, the story of which comes together more concretely in today's scene than possibly any other in the entire film. And that is why today's guest is today's guest, as he is no stranger to straining cinephile synapses to their outermost limits of understanding and comprehension. Ah, and by the way, he's no stranger to the world of PTA. I am talking about an art director, a writer, the creator of Cinephile, a card game, a writer for IndieWire, the film stage, and, and, and Cigarettes and Red Vines, the definitive Paul Thomas Anderson resource, which he co-ran from 2010 to 2013. The man, the myth, the guy who has broken more film fans than any other guest on this show through his game, Cinephile, Corey Everett, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Travis, I'm excited to be here. Well, you better be. You better be, because you 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 have a you've got. A, I think I think this is a. 
I think that this is an all-out marquee sequence of the film. I, I don't think it gets as much love as Doc and Shasta running in the rain or Moto Panakeku. And I think it's because I, I, I feel like a lot of people gloss over this sequence that we're going to talk about today. But I, I am so excited because this, to me, is where everything plot-wise that everyone says is confusing comes together. And like I said, since you've broken so many cinephile brains lately, I felt like you were the man to come on. Well, I appreciate that. Um, as no one else would know but Travis, as soon as uh, this show was announced, I reached out immediately and just said, hey, you know, if you're going to need guests, I'm not quite sure what your lineup's going to look like, but I would love to come on and talk about this movie. Um, so I'm really excited to uh, finally be here and especially to talk about this scene. And I, again, I, I am so excited to talk to you about this one because I think you have a brain built for this one. But before, before, before we do that, I want you to kind of, do me a favor and explain to people so they understand what I'm talking about if they haven't heard about it, what Cinephile a Card Game is, what it does, and what it pushes a film fan to do. Yeah, um, so, wow, let's see. So some film friends and I used to go to this movie trivia at Videology in Brooklyn, like for about two years. We would go every single week and we were in a room with just some of like the smartest, nerdiest, like hardcore film nerds ever. And when our team sort of fell apart, I really missed it. And I sort of bought a couple other film games and, you know, played them and they were fun, but they weren't exactly what I was looking for. And so I basically got together with a friend of mine, uh, Steve Isaacs, very talented illustrator, um, and uh, did a Kickstarter campaign, campaign uh, for something called Cinephile, a card game, which was basically a way to bring together a lot of games that kind of movie nerds already would play, like Six Degrees, which is a spin on the Kevin Bacon game, or Filmography, mm -hmm. where you name uh, all of the movies by one actor, or movie actor, where you jump between a movie and an actor and a movie. And I just thought, um, with a really nicely designed, beautiful deck of cards, you could kind of play any of those games. You could play, you know, the game from Inglorious Bastard, where you put the card on your head, <laughs> and the cards would just be kind of a beautifully designed instigator to playing all these games. And so we did a Kickstarter campaign. We um, got uh, picked up by a public publisher, uh, Clarkson Potter, uh, which is the division of Penguin Random House. So basically a year went by until the release and then it came out last summer and I've kind of been working on it like ever since. And it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of fun to watch people play. I'm going to be playing it myself, but like I, I'm probably going to be like just in, drenched in cold sweat and terror when I do it. But it is a lot of fun to actually watch other people play when you do it online. Like I, I love, I love seeing that. It's a, especially when you watch people do that, which is you can see in their eyes, I'm going to get dark here. You see the light die in their eyes when they realize they don't know that they, they cannot remember the next Nick Cage movie. They got to throw out to stay, to stay afloat. There's something about that. I, I, I adore watching it. It's yeah, and so what Travis is talking about is um, basically since everybody got trapped inside a couple months ago, uh, some of my good friends formerly of the Videology Trivia and um, currently of the Film Stage website, we basically got together and said, uh, well, can we do something, you know, A, so we don't go stir crazy and B, so we can try and raise a little bit of money for theaters and, you know, movie theater employees and, you know, various other good causes as this kind of, you know, pandemic has rolled on and all kinds of other social unrest has gone on. So we've basically been doing this thing called Cinephile Game Night, where we have on different, you know, podcasters, film writers, directors, you know, anything. And they basically come on for about an hour on Zoom and we kind of all play this game together. And so it's been a really 
fun way to both like meet different corners of the film community and film Twitter and you know people I kind of know from their little icons and actually get to play with them face to face. Um, and it does scratch a little bit of that like socializing itch that we have sort of been missing for some, some time now. So it's been really <laughs> fun and gratifying and being able to, on top of that, raise money for so many good causes has been amazing. And so, yeah, we would love to have you on at some point. Well, now I feel bad, you know, for such a good cause. I'm talking about how it's going to break people and like shatter them. And it will me too. It will me too, but for a good cause. So I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to break myself on the internet for you. Now that's, that's one reason for you to come onto this show and talk about Inherent Vice and talk about a very brain-busting scene, I think. Another one, though, is, as I said, from 2010 to 2013, you co-ran Cigarettes and Red Vines. And I have to imagine anyone listening to this show would have to know what that is. But if for some, some strange kink of fate, they don't. That is basically the online resource for any and everything PTA film related. Absolutely anything. To the point where I think it, it began as just kind of like a fan site, but it's a, it more or less has morphed into his essentially, his, his official website, no? Yeah, I think it's always had a little bit of that distance. It was started in the 90s um, by this guy, Greg Mariotti uh, and uh, CJ Wallace. Uh, so I think Greg moved on at some point after a bunch of years and CJ was running it. And he's also a very talented filmmaker. And I think at a certain point, he got a little bit too busy to just keep up with the amount of news that was coming in. And so I reached out to him in the dark period of five years between There Will Be Blood and The Master and basically just kind of volunteered and said, hey, if you don't have time, I'd love to kind of take this on and, and you know, get it up to date. And there, a lot of stuff was sort of on like old web technology and just even porting it over to Blogspot and making sure the pages weren't dead and the old interviews and the archives and all that stuff. So um, we kind of did that together. And so the, basically the entire production period of The Master up through just when Inherent Vice was getting started up um, I worked on that about, yeah, just every day, fairly obsessively, just trying to keep everything um, up to date and make sure it didn't get lost. And yeah, it's always been a great website and it's still a great, it's amazing. De it's definitive amazing. website for yeah, anyone who wants to know anything about PTA. And because, because of your work on that website, as, as you told me off air, you and PTA have become best friends. <laughs> and he, he has told you the nature of Sword of Leisure's reality, what the sex scene in this film means, uh, uh, as well as whether or not Doc and Shasta make it in the end. And you're going to reveal all of those right now to this audience because he's told you all these things for sure. Absolutely. And, oh, thank goodness. I can, well, I can quit the show now. I don't have to do another 15 episodes. Thank God. Yeah. So yeah just, you just explain all that. Great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, because because of those things. That is why you're here today. And that's why you're going to hold my hand through, through this very, very heavily plotted sequence in which all these different lines of force that have been building in the film come together. But before we do that, as someone who is an avowed PTA fan, a, a, a PTA scholar, tell me about the first time you saw Inherent Vice and how you processed it. Because I think you had a very unique experience that not everyone has had with this film in terms of how you took it in. Yeah, um, so as a big fan of this show, one of my favorite parts is kind of just hearing everybody's first reaction. You know, if they came across it a, last year on their computer, if they were at the premiere, if they saw a screening, <laughs> what they felt about it at first, how they felt about it later, you know, I, I 
it's always interesting, especially a movie that's been as divisive as this one, to just sort of see everyone's reaction to it. So, yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to kind of come on was talk about my very unusual um, experience with seeing this movie the, for the first time. So the, the film, um, the first screening, the world premiere was at the New York Film Festival in the fall of 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically what happened was uh, the New York Film Festival uh, does several screenings to accommodate, you know, the number of people that come in. I can't remember if it was centerpiece or I think it was a centerpiece screening maybe. So the big galas, they, they have more than one screening of to accommodate everyone who wants to go. So um, so I got tickets for the movie and a buddy of mine, uh, we saw Boogie Nights uh, in the theater in high school, as high school kids, went in thinking, okay, it's a movie about porn and we basically work at the movie theater <laughs> and we see everything and it'll be fun. And we basically walked out of the theater, you know, two and a half hours later, our minds just like totally blown. Like we had no idea that that's what we were gonna be in for. And from that point on, I just kind of became obsessed and we just, counted down the days till Magnolia and, you know, drove to New York for Punch Drunk Love, you know, so just year after year kind of have kept up. And so this buddy of mine that I first discovered PTA with uh, came up, uh, was going to come up to New York for the premiere at New York Film Fest. And so the kind of thing that I had learned, um, as you've talked about the different sides of PTA's career, you know, kind of the first half and the latter half, if that's, you know, the Coke kid and weed dad, you know, what Thank have you. Thank you for using our yes. official terminology from Jason that is, Bailey, Coke kid and weed dad. Thank that you. That is the increment by sanctioned uh, uh, <laughs> division. Um, but I've, I've, I haven't quite put it in those terms, but I've always sort of thought about the same divide, which is his 90s movies um, were basically um, the kind of, kid who who knew everything and had every idea and when he got on set every whip pan every music cue everything was in his head and he knew yeah. exactly what he was doing and all of that changed with punch drunk love i think heart eight to boogie nights to magnolia is like a perfect trilogy where you can see a young filmmaker absorbing his influences and trying to one-up them it is it is a guy who's 26 years old um, who just saw Goodfellas, you know, six years earlier going, okay, I can do that. And then putting out Boogie Nights, which arguably does do that. You know, it's just like, it blows my mind to yeah. think of, of someone that age taking something on that scale and not just sort of mimicking it in some way, but taking the style, the energy, the everything in the kitchen sink kind of, you know, balls to the wall, youthful exuberance and kind of matching it, you know, for the level of enthusiasm. And, and so- also adding yeah. that very PTA-ish by way of Jonathan Demme, that empathy and humanity. Yes. Even when he was jittery, smart-ass coke kid, yes. there is this through line of compassion that understandably Scorsese, I don't think could have for say uh, uh, the, the the crew in Goodfellas by the second half, the second half of that movie when when uh, 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 real, when Leota is is standing on his his stoop and he's a he's a schnook like everybody else, uh, you know, getting ordering uh, ordering uh, um, meatballs and spaghetti and he's getting ketchup instead of spaghetti sauce, you know, there's no sympathy there. I don't, there's no like, oh, that's too bad. I wanted him to be okay. I wanted Pesci to be okay. There's no empathy or sympathy in that film. Whereas when Boogie Nights traverses that same arc, it's so heartbreaking in, by the end. By the, and when you're watching Dirk Diggler stare into the mirror, like another Scorsese character at the end of that film, 
your heart almost breaks for him and you, you actually still hope he's going to be okay. You hope he's going to make it. And I, and I, and I, I, know, I know I'm railroading your train of thought here, but I just had to say that I love that not only does he do Goodfellas, not only does he match Goodfellas, he does the one thing that by its kind of intrinsic nature, Goodfellas cannot do. Exactly. And with that sense of humanity and compassion and hope as, you know, the Beach Boys are playing and uh, Jack is waltzing through his, his home and you see everybody together again, leaves you with that sense of fam- familial grace and, and hope. And that's, that's a, the fact that he can not just recreate his Goodfellas, but add to it and yes. make more of it is, is, a, is why he's PTA and why we're the rest of us. Exactly. Because he can do that. And add his own secret sauce and just, you know, and Scorsese at that point was a filmmaker in the middle of his career. And so the, the, the analog that I would say to that is, you know, Good, uh, Goodfellas was kind of a mid to late career kind of resurgence yeah. masterpiece for Scorsese. And, you know, the age that he was around that time, it would be the equivalent of PTA's There Will Be Blood in 2007. And then thinking, okay, was there a 26 year old in 2014? who watched There Will Be Blood, and then six, seven years later said, I can do that? Because if it was, I didn't see it in 2014. Yeah. And so just the kind of the ambition and the ability to pull it off, you know, is just staggering. So, so there, there's his first three movies, and then there's kind of Punch Drunk Love and everything afterwards. And Punch Drunk Love is the transitional movie because it's the movie where he threw all of that out the window. He let go. And, he let yes. go. And it's the movie where he shot for a couple weeks and didn't know what he was doing. And then I believe there was a writer's strike or something that happened where they had to shut down production. They went into the edit room, they saw what they had, they got to make a plan and go back and film again and reshoot a lot of that stuff and kind of get their sea legs as it were. And, and basically I think PTA sort of found a more intuitive style of filmmaking where it was less about um, going to set and, and executing your vision you know, shot for shot and it was more about an experience of finding the movie while you're making the movie. And I think exactly. basically everything from Punch Drunk Love onward would sort of fit that description um, to varying degrees. Um, but basically what you see from that point on is um, PTA, the filmmaker who gives himself the time on set to shoot a scene in two or three different locations with the same actors. It's not working in the diner, we're gonna move it to the bench, you know, whatever yep. it is. And so it's, you've got um, Doc dropping off Coy at his house. Uh, maybe there's a light on from the inside. No, you know what, maybe they're all in the driveway, you know, and he'll try it different <laughs> ways. And it's, so it's not going, I know exactly where the camera is and I know exactly what comes in here. It's him sort of feeling his way through, what is this movie? And I think that's why you know, to a certain segment of the population, his movies have become less accessible to some some section of mainstream moviegoers who are used to certain beats and rhythms uh, and narratives. And PTA has just sort of refused to play by those rules for, you know, uh, certainly the latter uh, section of his career. Um, so anywho, um, all of that is to say, uh, I knew when the New York Film Festival said, we're going to premiere in Inherent Vice, um, I knew that if I were to see it once, and I believe it was October, and then the movie wasn't coming out until December, that I would sort of have no idea what to make of it, or whatever I thought it was. And if I had to wait two months to see it again, it would kind of kill me with that lingering question mark over <laughs> my head of what did I just watch? Because You're that's a man the feeling, after my own heart. Yeah, that's the feeling I had walking out of 
punch drunk love. Uh, there will be blood, the master, you know, to varying degrees. It's not that I liked them or didn't like them. It's that I kind of didn't know what the movie was. And it was only after repeat viewings. Magnolia was the last time, you know, I loved Boogie Nights, went to Magnolia, and the first view viewing blew my hair back. And it was exactly yeah. what I wanted based on the filmmaker who had made Heart Aid and Boogie Nights. But everything since then has been trying to wrap your mind around the idea of PTA doing a movie like the one that he's making. And so if that's uh, Adam Sandler 90-minute romantic comedy coming on the heels of Magnolia, you have no idea what to conjure for that until you see it. And then it kind of, your, your brain reconstructs around what the movie is. And then, you know, you love it after however many viewings. So I, so I knew it was a dangerous thing to see it once. And so me and my friend decided, well, we're gonna see it at the 6 p.m. showing and we're gonna see it again at the 9 p.m. showing. So that way we'll at least get two viewings in. And then if we have to wait two <laughs> months, we'll kind of have had time to digest it a little bit more. Uh, I believe it was also Passover that weekend, uh, and my wife, who was celebrating with her family, um, also wanted to see the movie. And then New York Film Festival added a midnight screening, and my wife said, well, I could make it back into the city for the midnight screening. Oh so, my <laughs> and so we were like, all right, You are it. a man after my own heart. We're going to go three times. And so the first time I saw Inherent Vice was at 6 p.m., 9 p.m., and midnight. And we were so excited for this. And the next day, PTA was doing a big talk, uh, you know, 90-minute conversation about his influences for the movie, all that stuff with Kent Jones, I believe. And so we were, you know, my buddy came into town and we was really excited to have this experience. And so Alice Tully Hall, lights go down, here comes Inherent Vice for the first time. I haven't read the book um, the same way I didn't read, like, the leaked screenplay for The Master when that, you know, was out, even though I was covering it for the site just because I like my first experience to be pure. Yeah. Um, so I really didn't know what to expect. And so we watched the movie and it was nothing like we expected. And the movie ended and people applauded and we walked out onto the New York streets and walked around the block and we were both very quiet. And neither of us <laughs> really knew what to say. And it wasn't that we had hated the movie and it wasn't that we didn't like the movie. It was that we were so excited and we had no idea what we had just seen. There was almost like no connection between um, what was going on on screen and our brain's ability to process that. Like as strange as that sounds, it was no, like it makes total the sense. comedy wasn't quite landing. The emotion wasn't quite landing. We couldn't follow the plot and it looked amazing. And we just didn't quite know what it was. And so the feeling was not just, oh, we were a little let down. He's our favorite. You know, it was pretty good. The feeling was sheer terror because we knew we were about to watch that movie two more times. And if that movie didn't play a second time and then a third time, we were about to hate a movie by our favorite filmmaker. And so we went back in, you know, we talked about it a little bit. And we went back in for the 9 p.m. And the movie started up again, Alice Tully Hall, everyone's excited. And something from minute one clicked. And I never in my life have had such a 180 of an experience because the second time from minute one through the end card just played like gangbusters. And it was funny and we got it and it was sad and we just kind of had a completely different experience. And so we walked out of that screening on cloud nine and then my <laughs> wife met us and we were amped to go see it at midnight. You know, our adrenaline was running so high and we saw it again 
think this was in the smaller theater and Walter Reed and the filmmaker Steve McQueen's there, you know, everyone's there. And, we, and, and then it was just a midnight movie that we yeah. already knew pretty well and we saw it again. And so that's, letting you get a word in here was my first uh, couple experiences uh, with, with the movie, so. Well, it actually, the, that, that's amazing. But what I would add to that is, you know who we got to talk to on this show is your wife to get her point of view of some, as the person who's seeing it for the confused first time with these two guys that are like, oh my God, this is the greatest PTA yeah. movie you're going to see. The confound, I'm, I'm confused, or I'm, con <laughs> I'm curious as to how confounded she may have been by these two guys who were just dying for this movie in love. And then her having that first movie experience again, yeah. as you guys are sitting there, elbowing going, huh, huh, huh? See that, see that? <laughs> well, I will say as I was kind of revisiting the movie over the past couple nights um, uh, to get ready for this podcast, watching it before bed on the iPad, not my intended method of viewing, but how I've seen you. it enough how times. So you. I was, you know, taking notes and, you know, trying to think of some things to talk about. And uh, I wrote down what she said to me, which is just leaning over and seeing bits of it over my shoulder. She said, it's viscerally stressful to me and I don't know why. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just even oh, catching no. <laughs> a, a silent glimpse of the movie um, gave her that reaction. And so oh, no. just to say that, you know, as I've listened to all the different people come on this podcast and just anecdotally in my own life, if someone says to me, I hated Inherent Vice, I did not like Inherent Vice. And that can be, you know, Joe moviegoer who is not a cinephile and that can be a you know a friend of mine who is a big PTA fan only saw it once and really did not care for it. I do not blame these people and I completely understand where they're coming from but the thing I will say every time is have you seen it more than once and and just and relay my own tale which is to say look no one was more invested than me and I still completely get where you're coming from and so I will just say that a second viewing for me, you know, I'm envious of anyone who had that the first time around, but for me, the second viewing just unlocked the movie. Um, and so I sort of recommend that to anybody who, you know, was a little cold on it the first time. And what's interesting is that you essentially experienced the arc that most of the people that come on this show, you know, are usually people who enjoy the film, but a lot of them go through that arc where they're like, well, I saw it the first time theatrically, or I did a press screening, and you know, I, I didn't understand, I couldn't, I couldn't hear what Joaquin was saying, he mumbles the whole movie, uh, I'm supposed to care that a guy got kidnapped, and then he, he gets found, and there's still like an hour left in the movie, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to make of that, I don't know, it was okay, and then they'll be like, well, but, you know, it was on HBO, or I got this, I got a screener, or I got a DVD or Blu-ray, and, you know, it's, it's actually kind of funny. And I didn't realize how sad it was. And then it goes on and on into, to the point where they're like, yeah, I'd love to talk for an hour and a half about Inherent Vice on a podcast. And it's interesting to hear someone go through that arc over the course of like, what, seven hours, eight hours? Almost. Yes. And like I've had, I've had movies in my life that, you know, I was a little soft on the first time and revisited and felt a little better about or movies that I really liked and wasn't as crazy about the second time. But never have I had such polar opposing reactions and in such a compressed time. And that's, you know, purely because I came at it from an angle of, you know, uh, unlicensed PTA, you know, scholar <laughs> of, of just going, you know, I, I know I'm going to need more than one sitting with this. And so I'm going to, I'm going to allow myself that up front without kind of having to take time away from it. Um, 
So well, given that you went through that traditional arc, but in such such a compressed time frame, I'm curious. You saw it that second time and you loved it. And I'm assuming you loved it the same or even more that third time, that midnight screening. Yep. Uh, what did the film concretize into for you that second and third time? Did you walk away going, oh, I get it. It's, 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 a, it's a love story. Or, oh, I get it. It's an end of an era movie. Or like what, what movie? Because I feel like this movie is inherent vice. It's a bit of a roar, a lot like the master. It's a bit of a Rorschach film, I think, in that. It can be something to you. And it can be a completely different film to me. And um, although I do, I, I actually find Inherent Vice and The Master both to be kind of the same film, which is, you know, that one that you just can't be with. You wish you couldn't, and you just it's, you can't. Yeah, to- and, they're absolutely like sister films in that way. Exactly. And I'm curious, what what was inherent? What has Inherent Vice become to you? And what it, what did it become to you between that uh, first screening and the third All in One Night? Um, well, as I said to you, um, before we started taping, it's just kind of the way that you feel about Inherent Vice is the way I feel about The Master. It's just a movie that, because that was during the period that I was writing for Cigarettes and Red Vines, and it's sort of one of the movies, if not the movie, that I've thought the most about in my entire life, just because I was sort of chronicling it for the website and, and logging every interview and, you know, keeping up with the news and all of that stuff, and so, um, for what may be his most opaque movie in terms of walking away with the clear message of here's exactly what this movie <laughs> yeah. means and what it says. It's a movie that, you know, every time I watch it and I'm talking about the master, um, you know, I saw it several times sort of before it came out even, and each viewing would play as a different movie. You know, I'd have one viewing that was just incredibly sad. And then the viewing after it was just like so funny, you know, the stuff on the beach and all of that. And so I kind of, you know, I think PTA's movies, you know, as much as they may have themes, and certainly the themes of Thomas Pynchon or Pynchon's book are in this movie and they're there, I just think PTA is a filmmaker that is never going to underline them for you because his movies are more about the experience than a message. Um, And so he has this quote that I wrote down, which is basically something to the effect of, uh, Sometimes it's better to confuse them, uh, meaning the audience, for five minutes than let them get ahead of you for 10 seconds. And I feel like his yeah. later films are, are all about this. So rather than be you know, didactic and hit the nail on the head of what the theme is, he'd rather surf this moment or a sensation or a performance and have the audience catch up. So that's why movies like The Master and Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread are so sort of beguiling to watch is because you you just can't quite get your arms around what it all means because it means lots of things. You know, he doesn't need to take the marker out and underline a theme. Um, he, he could underline a theme and he could telegraph the plot in Inherent Vice for clarity of the audience, uh, sure. but he doesn't do that, you know, and he, 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 he prizes the experience of watching the movie over making sure everyone walks away uh, with the same thought in their head, because those are the movies that you can put back on the shelf and go, okay, so Doc did this mystery and he's a good guy and you know the hippie dream was crushed and that's what this was about. And his movies will kind of, at least in this stage of his career, never be that thing, which is why they're so, you know, for people like us, um, so incredible to return to time after time because you almost will never see the same movie twice. Because there's, a, there's an indelibility there, as you, and as you said, because nothing is underlined. Although what's interesting is, I do feel like, as you said, the Coke kid, PTA, he was, in that era of his, era of his career, everything was underlined. 
yeah. feel like everything was explicit. And I don't, I, and I think maybe some of that comes just from inexperience and, and kind of youthful maturity. And you really want to, you know, you've written this thing, you, it means something and they need to know what it means. And also I think from having been burned on Sydney, feeling a need to expressly control the film's message above all else. And as you said, that, that, that fades away once we get into Punch Drunk Love and he begins to let go and not needing to storyboard every shot. What I find interesting is I do agree that Punch Drunk On, there is that, no, I'm not going to underline. I'm not going to, let me get ahead of them and they will catch up eventually. What's interesting to me though is a film like Inherent Vice and as, as, as has been said other times on this show, it does feel a little bit like it's the one movie where we dad is looking back at Coke Kid and thinking of him because the, the best way I can put it for why I think this film confuses people in a way that Phantom Thread doesn't confuse people in a way that even the master doesn't quite confuse people, even though it does confuse them, I think for different reasons, is inherent vice to the people that walk away hating it it feels like a movie in which something is being underlined but it is not clear what that is you get just that frustrating sense of heft of meaning of knowing that something is being said to you but having no idea what that thing is and just knowing it's being said but unable to grasp it i think infuriates the hell out of some people just absolutely infuriates them and but but in keeping with later period pta i think that's kind of the point is whatever is being underlined is kind of on you to pick out because there's like 17 different things in this movie that you could say that it is and it's, it's kind of up to you to go oh well it's a detective uh, elegy for the end of an era or no 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 it's it's, it's a breakup movie or no it's more just about the past and letting go and drifting into the fog of the future or no it's about american fascism be any and all of those things and you can make a really really great argument for how it's exactly only one of those things but it is kind of on you something is being underlined but you have to pick it out and i think that's where i think it's where a lot of folks experience trouble with this film is the fact that they have to pick and they have to decide what the underlined item is without being yeah. told and there's like a funny disconnect because i feel like whenever you see PTA in interviews and, you know, I love your impression, by the way, so keep, <laughs> keep it up, um, is he, he does say, you know, he wants to make a Saturday Night movie. Yeah. And yeah. yet there's something inside of him that's just like, he knows how to make Boogie Nights. Like he could make Inherent Vice the Boogie Nights cut. He has no interest in that movie. Okay. Sure. And so it's like when he was making his 90s movies, you know, he was 29 when he made Magnolia. And so you think about a guy who just turned 50, it's like, he is a different person. He's a different filmmaker. And he's someone who kind of from the 2000s on has been adamant that he did not want to repeat himself. And so each movie, he's almost trying to start from scratch in a way and kind of unlearn the way he knows how to make a movie and make something that feels completely unlike himself. And so anything that kind of ends up coming out in the work, you know, the the dad themes are, you know, the kind of pairing with the master and how the sort of finales line up with the Philip mm -hmm. Seymour Hoffman, uh, Joaquin face-off with the Bigfoot uh, doc face-off and this. And so oh. all these things I feel like are, are, are just sort of the, that's what's in his DNA. But, yeah. but like the intellectual PTA is saying, 
I never want to repeat myself and whatever I do next is going to be nothing like the last thing I did. And so I think there's certain filmmakers out there, certain great filmmakers who have made very successful careers digging into the thing that they do and doing it over and over and over and continuing to refine this version uh, uh, of movie making that they do. And I think the thing that has always drawn me to PTA is that he is not that filmmaker. And so there may be times when he's ahead of me, you know, I'm 10 or so years younger than him. And he may have just made a movie that I don't quite get yet. But after a couple of viewings or a couple years, you know, I'm going to get there. And I think there's something so fascinating that, you know, for 20 some years, he's kind of never disappointed me because of his drive to continually um, expand what it is a PTA movie can be. Um, I'll, I'm going to interject with one last thing, sorry, which is when, when I- um, <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> seemed like you're about to talk and I just thought, no, isn't this my show? No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. So when I was doing this making, I did a series called Making the Master when I was um, uh, writing for Cigarettes and Red Vines, where I talked to uh, many of the principals behind the master and did interviews with them. And since I had read all the master interviews when the movie came out, when it was kind of coming on DVD and I was doing them, I got to ask questions that like no one had asked before. And so I uh, got to interview Paul and his producer, Joanne Seller and costume designer, Mark Bridges and production designers, uh, Jack Fisk and uh, David Crank. David Crank ended up doing Inherent uh, Vice. And um, something stood out during that interview and I wrote it down, which is just Jack Fisk, who uh, is married to Sissy Spacek, has worked on- He's worked on by literally everything. everything yeah. by every, it, yes. Name an auteur yeah. and Fisk has been on that set. That, has, that was Fisk's set. And he did uh, There Will Be Blood, and he's worked with Terrence Malick and David Lynch and whatever. And so I sort of asked a more or less throwaway question, which was, you know, what's the difference in working with a filmmaker like PTA versus working with someone like Lynch or Terrence Malick? And I think he gave me some kind of answer, you know, when we were on the phone, and, um, and it was good, transcribed it, whatever. And then I got a text the next day, which I still say is the best text message I ever got from Jack Fisk. And he said he wanted to add a little something to that. And I'm just going to read it verbatim. So oh Jack, Jack Fisk texted me and said, um, uh, this is about uh, David Lynch, uh, um, uh, <laughs> uh, Terrence Malick, and, and Paul Thomas Anderson. And so he says, uh, David is a painter that creates his unique world in films. Uh, Terry is a philosopher that visualizes his thoughts. And Paul is a jazz musician that plays characters. And I just thought that was like the most oh, concise, that's so thoughtful, good. incisive bit of film criticism. Like, <laughs> like more than anything I ever wrote. <laughs> you know, apologies to uh, the playlist, uh, but I just thought that was so great and kind of summed up um, the way that PTA makes movies. Jesus, well, God, I need a minute to take a breath after that. That's that is a heavy drop to throw at me on this show. And you know, I and you know, you're not wrong. We we might have to retire Coke Kid and Weed Dad. We have to. It might have to be like Bebop Kid and Free Jazz Dad, <laughs> because there is something to that. Especially, especially in the second half of his career, there is that feeling of intuiting his way through a film. And obviously, the man knows what he wants to do. You know, you, you spend two years writing a script, uh, you know, developing a film. You know, I, I know that I know that he doesn't just show up and go. Well, I'll, I'll wing it. I, I'll, I'll figure something out. But there is that sense that everything is being intuitively grasped. And like you said, there's the, there's a looseness of, oh, well, you know, Reese and Lakeem, they're just not clicking. 
the sun is in their eyes and this diner there's a there's a bench over there i could just do a long push in why the hell not let's just let's see maybe that'll play better maybe that'll play bigger on the screen why not and i find that as much as i love something like sydney as much as i love boogie nights as much as i love magnolia that sense of discovery permeates the dna of all of his films in a way that is how did your wife describe it when she was leaning over your shoulder uh watching was it um vigilantly she, terrifying she said it's was... it's viscerally stressful to viscerally me and i don't stressful. know why maybe that's why for the same reason that i enjoy it there's almost a even for a you know a, kind of a profoundly measured a measured pace to a film like something like Phantom, uh, phantom thread there's almost a roller coaster sense of having no idea where this is going to whiplash to by the time you get to the end. Phantom Thread's a great example. I, I will admit, I went to that going, oh God, is he doing like a Merchant Ivory movie? Oh. Right, yeah, you had, you had, because oh, you had no boy. conception of what it could be. Like, because the idea a, was so crazy, and then you see it and you go, oh, it's both I, unlike anything he's ever made, and yet fits perfectly <laughs> into these characters and stories that he tells. I went to the premiere of that movie, and I and I, I was trying to get myself to be excited because I was going to the premiere, but I was like, oh boy, I don't know. I, is, I mean, remains of the day. It's not a bad movie. It's just I don't know if that's that's what I. Uh, this is the only new PTA movie I'm going to get for two or three years. Is it going to be this? And then I walk out going, my God, that's the horniest movie that man's ever made. And and, <laughs> I, and there's and on top there's poison. Spoiler alert. Right. Uh, uh, I will slightly, <laughs> a slight, slightly embarrassing story. I went to the first, um, I think it was at the DGA theater in New York. I can't remember if mm -hmm. it was right around Thanksgiving or something. So it was like the first ever screening of that. And again, I'm so excited and I go and I see it. And I, it was definitely more immediate than Inherent Vice. So I like, sure. liked it right away. But still, you don't, you know, until the, the last act of that movie. Kind I of had no idea turn, what that movie was yes, until that until final sequence. it plays sequence. its cards you don't know what you're watching. And as soon yeah. as it does, you the second viewing is a completely different experience. And so I saw the movie and really liked it and um, was leaving the theater on the way out and I'm walking up the street and uh, who do I literally bump into, but I see PTA kind of headed back the other direction. <laughs> and I know him very, very little bit from running the site and they were always very supportive of CJ and myself for doing that. And so um, I stopped him and said, just said, oh, hey, just wanted to say hi, you know, whatever. And immediately asked me, you know, what I thought of the movie. And I said something, you know, s stammered something to the effect of having really liked it and then added, but I never quite know <laughs> what to make of your movies after first viewing. And then immediately just wanted to slap myself in the face for telling him that. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was, uh, that was that little moment. Well, to, I want to bring us back to Inherent Vice. I think we both had a similar experience with Phantom Thread, which is we're sitting there and we're watching the film, we're like, okay, this is definitely not what I thought it was, which is good because I, like I said, you know, I, I love Merchant Ivory, but I don't, I don't need PTA Merchant Ivory. Like, right. I, I, I want something a little funkier. And it, obviously I'm watching the movie and it's, it's far funkier. And there's you know, all these shades of, uh, of Hitchcock's Rebecca. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is, this is something, but I don't know what this is. I, I, I felt watching the first two thirds of Phantom Thread, the way I think most people describe themselves as feeling when they're watching Inherent Vice for the first time. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I, I remember even thinking, I was like, because I was going to tell some people after the screening, uh, they, I knew that they were going to ask me what I thought. I was like, you know, I'm usually pretty good at like, 
you know, clocking a movie and being able to say, well, that was this. this. Like, I have no idea what this is for. I have no idea why this was made. I have no idea why. It's, it's amazing. The acting is sublime. The, the cinematography, my God, PTA and his team, this is, this is one of the most gorgeous and diffuse and, and lovely series of images that he's ever put on the screen. But I don't know why he's done it. Like, I, I don't know why anyone would commit to this. And then comes along a certain cooking scene in that movie. And it was just like all of these cosmic tumblers in a lot came together. I'm like, oh, this movie's been about this the whole time. Oh, my God. And it unlocked it. It unlocked the entire film retroactively for me. And then, of course, a couple of days later, I immediately go see it again. And it's one of the most entertaining theatrical PTA experiences I've had is watching Phantom Thread the second time on the big screen, knowing what it is, laughing so much harder, and also feeling that it is so less Kubrickian and chilly than I thought it was the first time around because I know exactly where it's going because of that one scene, that kind of cosmic keyhole of a scene. Yes. And the reason I mention that is because you did do that wild ass three screenings in one night inherent vice trilogy, your first time. And you viewed it under such a, such a compressed uh, time uh, timeline was there that scene for you in Inherent Vice, that scene where you're like, oh, oh, now that we, that's what the movie is. That's what it is. I get it now. It's X. Um, no, which is so weird. It's just like literally from minute one, from Shasta comes into the house and we were just locked in in a way yeah. that the first viewing, we just weren't. And it's funny, we had both gone through the same experience, you know, to the point that we both didn't want to be the one to say it. You know, we didn't yeah. want to be the one that didn't love it. Um, and then just something, something just clicked. And I think, you know, most of his, you know, movies since Punch Drunk Love do flower over time in that way. I yeah. think this one for me was the most extreme. Um, Phantom Thread, as you said, kind of when you get to the end of it, the second viewing unlocks itself. Oh, it's a dark comedy. Whereas the yeah. first time I'm watching it, I'm going, is this going to be some kind of, you know, grand Gothic bloody finale, some super dark, <laughs> you know, is it going to involve murder? Is it going to, and then you go, Oh, uh, to steal a phrase from one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, it's about love, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I love that quote. Um, so so yeah, I, it really wasn't one thing. Um, mm. The other thing that you said a minute ago was just around the idea of um, kind of the controlled chaos of the Inherent Vice set. Cause you know, the Josh Brolin interviews where he was sort of talking about like, it He's was never complete, seen anything like this. Yeah, it's complete insanity, shocked. right? And so, you know, between that and him kind of mentioning the, you know, airplane, um, you know, Abram Zucker vibes yeah. in the New York Times interview and during the New York uh, Film Festival talk, your mind is preparing for a very different movie. And I think exactly. there's probably enough footage that he could have made that movie. And I think part of the way that he works now is, and maybe it's just because I've been watching too much Top Chef recently, but it's almost <laughs> like he has all the ingredients and he needs to invent the recipe in the editing room. And so it's like, he has, you know, so many scenes that are probably these broadly comic, you know, Joaquin, you know, swing his arms and falling over and <laughs> Bigfoot mouthing the banana. And he has all these things. And he sort of realizes once he goes to, you know, put the meal out um, that he wants to kind of use them sparingly. And he kind yeah. of wants to switch between the more melancholy tone 
and the idea that this is going to be a full out, you know, just zany comedy. And I think that's what's hard to wrap your brain around the first time is kind of what the tone of this thing is. And because it's not the long exactly. it's not the big Lebowski, you know, we have reference point for those movies. And so because you're sort of seeing something that operates, you know, on a frequency that you probably haven't seen before, I, I understand that it, can take some people, you know, a viewing or two to sort of lock into its wavelength. And now, God, now that you've said that, now I'm sitting here thinking that there is somewhere out there on the Warner Brothers lot, there is that Raiders of the Lost Ark storage room with all the big boxes. And somewhere there's like the naked gun cut of Inherent Vice. And then, but there's also like the super hardcore heavy the master version right well, i guess you could like i say the master version of inherent vice the master version of inherent vice is the master but <laughs> that there's there's just that that all-out heavy slow boat to china heartbreaking version uh shasta fate uh version of inherent vice out there and i live by the warner's lot so maybe we'll be sneaking out there tonight but <laughs> that said we're talking about what it what it eventually became and as i as we were saying as i was saying earlier I think something that kind of befuddles people is there is that sense that that younger PTA sense of an of a very specific idea being underlined and the difference being between those earlier films and this film is this film and its filmmaker is not telling you what that thing is that's underlined you just know that it is mm -hmm. and I don't know or, that I got that or, answer out of you which is for you what is being underlined? What is inherent vice to you? Is it just well, a detective movie? Is it an elegy movie? Is it a love movie? Like what got yes. underlined for you that second time out? I mean, yes, all those things, but I think maybe because he sort of explicitly stated it, you know, in one of his couple interviews about the movie, which is just that, um, that it's a love story. And so yeah. I think I don't think that's the book that um, no. Pynchon wrote. And so that's why it was so interesting because Pynchon's book probably is more about the counterculture and its place in history and the death of this kind of hippie dream and being sold out and all this stuff. And I think that's there in the film. I just think um, it's sort of not in the forefront in the same way. And no. in the same way that even, I don't think the love story is even out front. Like I, I'm kind of team Penny Kimball over here where every time he's on screen with <laughs> Reese, I'm just like, yes, this, of course, of course Shasta is the girl that you're not supposed to be with. This even is not going to You work. and Karina Longworth, you're yeah, both and, and, uh, uh, Penny stands. And I think the film knows that as well because you know, the, the way it kind of ends with the graduate like uncertainty, as much as PTA sure. changes the ending of the book, instead of sending Doc off alone, he's sending them off together. He's sending them off to a very ominous, uncertain future. And there's even those kind of moments in the deleted scenes. And I'm not sure 100% that they were possibly going to go after the car driving scene when they kind of arrive on the beach and he's watching her walk down to the water under the tree. I've always like, wondered where, that's, where that shots. placement is because it's not in the shooting script. Yeah. And, and I'm, it's yes. not, there's nothing like that quite, quite, quite like that in the book. And I've always wondered where does that fall? Where she, she gets kind of stony and silent and Doc just kind of looks at her a little sheepish. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so that's Chef PTA in his filmmaking style of let's get all this stuff and let me see what I need when I get in the edit. And so yeah. basically, you know, you can imagine a world where the original ending of the movie, because I think in one of the scenes, they're kind of under the underpass and he's wearing the same shirt. I think it's, 
know if it's the brown shirt that he's wearing in the car as they're driving home. Yeah. So you're going, this could have very easily followed that. And whether the beach was the next day or not, and that was kind of kind of be the, you know, the denouement, the afterword of the movie, you know, with the Joanna Newsom narration that was originally in the script supposed to end. And then he just kind of decided in the edit, no, actually, we're going to get, you know, Chuck Jackson any day now. We're going to get the <laughs> Joaquin checks the mirror and we're going to cut. And that is the fucking end. And, and, and it's just him, you know, his genius is that he knows to throw all that other stuff away. And it's beautiful and could have been a great moment. And he doesn't care because he's about the experience of the film and knowing that that's where it goes out. The other, you know, fascinating bookend is, you know, the opening lines of the book, which are the opening lines of, of the narration by Joanna Newsom. Um, and the footage you see in the deleted scenes where Shasta is coming up the steps. Actually coming it's, up it's the steps. It's see and say. So, and he decided in the edit, oh, you know what? Having her tell me what I'm seeing while I'm seeing it is not working. So instead, I'm just going to show this kind of opening between the two houses and we're going to hear it and we're going to hear these kids running and that's how we're going to open. It's just like... Decisions like that just sort of fascinate me when you see the stuff he isn't using. Uh, there's a scene in The Master that I think about a lot, which is when Joaquin Phoenix is in the movie theater um, and he's watching a Tom and Jerry cartoon and he gets a phone call and like a butler brings him a telephone, which is <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman. And 99% of first time viewers assume that this is happening. And that Oh, I, I've, not I've talked about this. Yeah. I was so confounded. Yeah. The first time I watched that film, because I'm like, and I literally walked away going, because I, I didn't realize that was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman delivering the phone. On the, no, it's him. Oh, 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 I thought you meant that was on the phone. Oh, I was going to yeah. say, my God. Uh, yeah, so Boy, I'm missing, I'm missing things. Uh, but no, but I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, well, I guess in the 50s, that's what they did. They'd bring you a phone, of, uh, you know. <laughs> right. And so I think it's, you know, he's, he wants to communicate. He has nodded off in the theater and he has kind of dreamt this reunion which prompts him to go seek out Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and actually show up, which is why when he shows up, Philip Seymour Hoffman's like, what are you doing here? You know, because the <laughs> phone call didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but 99% of viewers missed this. And yet, PJ doesn't give a fuck if you miss it. You know, he doesn't care that you don't get it. You know, it's like, I think of that scene as like the bartender in The Shining when it reverse cuts to Jack Nicholson, he's talking to nobody <laughs> and then there's a guy standing there. That's the guy who brings Joaquin yeah. the phone. And the thing that fascinates me in those deleted scenes is he had a reverse shot of Tom and Jerry playing on the screen and he never cuts to it. And it's things like that where it's like, he has the reverse shot of Joaquin punching the air, you know, in, in a chick planet and falling. It's like, he doesn't need to hold your hand and he's going to do what's best for the movie. Even if it sacrifices a little bit of clarity up front, he's, sure. he's going to do whatever it takes. And so I always fascinated by those decisions. And, despite doing it that way though i do think and maybe this is actually kind of again what frustrates people because it gets them just far enough to sense that there's something there but not all the way to know what that something is i feel like even in those confusing moments like even for me when i was watching the master the first time i was like oh well i guess they bring you a phone i guess that's what they did <laughs> right it did not mitigate or blunt the emotional truth and power of the film, which I think is ultimately what he's going for. I got everything emotionally right. out of the master that I've gotten from subsequent viewings of the film when I totally or had a far greater understanding than I did the first time around. There is an emotional truth being conveyed that carries you through 
even on those moments where you're like, you're, I, I don't quite know what I'm seeing. I don't quite know what this is. And I feel like inherent vice is really the apex of that in his career where for so many, this plot is brain burstingly difficult to follow. And I don't, I, I don't think it is, but for some people, it's just the way it's, as you said, you know, you don't even think Shasta Fay is in the foreground. I feel like this is a film in which nothing is in the foreground. Everything mm-hmm. is kind of in the background. And I think that's why it's a little difficult for people because they're watching going, well, wait, is it the Harlingen thing? Is it Mickey Wolfman? I, I thought this was a breakup movie. Right. There's, there, and ultimately, because there is no underlying thing, there's just that emotional core that you have to kind of surf and ride the wave all the way to the end of this film. And for some people, that just that's just not enough because it actually lets them know that there is something to be riding on. I don't know why I'm doing the surf metaphor. I guess I'm turning into a, a, a pinch on character right now. It's, it's, it's almost a little too frustrating. It's a little too frustrating because you don't know where that wave is going to take you. You just know it's taking you somewhere. I think, I think the biggest, I think that's exactly right. I think the biggest difference with Inherent Vice and those other movies is um, the master and Phantom Thread and all these other things are not plot movies. You know, these are character, yeah. these are two-hander character movies. And I think Inherent Vice may operate by the same creative principles, but as an audience member who wants to grab onto the plot and follow it, you know, even though he's kind of said that's sort of the least interesting part of the Maltese Falcon or any of these other film noirs. So he wasn't really interested in doing that. I think that's why it's more frustrating than a movie like The Maxter, where you can miss some of the finer points, but still get the basic dynamic of, of, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin's characters, you know, without exactly following scene to scene. Whereas a a kind of detective mystery like this, the audience wants to get ahead of it. It wants to have the light bulb aha moment, you know, at the hour and 45 minute mark where it's ahead of the movie. And PTA kind of never allows for that. Not once. (laughs) So on that note, it's time for you and I to actually dive into the plot of this thing. And again, I maintain that there is perhaps no other sequence in this film in which the plot there's other scene there's scenes where the emotional core of the film i think is better felt there are scenes where the thematic core of the film is perhaps better felt but this is the moment if you are sitting there complaining and saying i don't know what this movie is about I don't understand what any of these threads of plot are, and they never, ever pay off or explain anything. It is my opinion that all of those plot threads land, they cohere, they tie together here at the Chryskylodon Institute, and they push us into the final third of the film, and they get us to the end. And we're going to talk about that after watching the scene. Owing to Governor Reagan's shutdown of most of the state mental facilities, the private sector had been given carte blanche to pick up the slack, soon, in fact, becoming a standard California child-rearing resource for kids like that old Japonica Fenway. Mr. Sportello. Mm. Dr. Aubrey Freepley. Oh, how do you do? So good to see you, sir. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, Would you... Sorry, would you like to use the facilities? You already used the bathroom? Oh, Get the bathroom before you take a tour of the facilities. This is my colleague, Dr. Lillehammer. Mr. Portello. Please join us. This is our administrative lounge. Our Chenin Blanc comes from the Institute's own vineyard. 
And steady as a rock today, I see, Kimberly. So happy you noticed, Dr. Threepley. More soup, Dr. Ryder? Yes, if you know what's good for you. Have you been with us before, Mr. Sportello? I know I've seen your face. Mm, first time I've been down here. Normally, I don't get much south of South City. And abnormally? <laughs> what? Well, I only meant that with any number of qualified facilities in the Bay Area, why bother coming all the way down here to us? Clients believe that Ojai is a planetary chakra. Ah, Chris Kyledon's motion picture palace. Now showing the Burke Stodger Marathon. Oh, Burke, all day, 24 hours of Stodger. People's Museum. And I warn you once more, this place is alive. This is particularly popular with the patients. Jade said once about vertical integration, that if the Golden Fang can get its customers strung out, why not turn around and sell them a program to help kick, get them coming and going, twice as much revenue? As long as American life was something to be escaped from, the cartel could always be sure of a bottomless pool of new customers. Is that a swastika on that man's face? Oh, no, it isn't. That's an ancient Hindu symbol, meaning all is well. It brings good fortune, luck, and well-being. What do you mean? No, mean that it looked like a swastika to me. Well, he isn't a regular employee of the Institute. Perhaps you should pay no attention to that man. Encapsulated in the charming phrase, which means, of course, you must be very tired. Which brings us to the Institute's own Zen garden, imported from Kyoto, but each textured pebble, each grain of white sand was transported and reassembled here exactly in place by a team of some of our more obsessive patients. Okay, so here we go. Everybody buckle up because I, I have something to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off here for a minute. I love all of you. I love everybody that watches this movie, and engages with this movie, tries to engage with this movie. And, and I've tried to be patient. I've tried to be patient when people tell me it doesn't make any sense, that there, there is no plot. There's actually an abundance of plot, although it, and it, despite that abundance, it is all rather simple. I 
am, I, I can't do it anymore, Corey. I can't do it anymore. I cannot hear people tell me the movie doesn't make sense. It does make sense. And not only does it make sense, this, this is the sequence. The Criscylodone sequence is where all of the 90 minutes of building volcanic plot points all finally erupt together. They have all been leading to this specific moment. And I'm going to ask all of you, as I said, buckle up because I am going to go through point by point and hammer this shit home to make my case. All right. We ready. We're going to be ready for all these threads. You ready for them to come together? Because here we go. This movie opens up with Shasta Faye Hepworth noting in its opening scene her suspicion that Sloane Wolfman and Riggs Warbley are working on a creepy little scheme to make off with Mickey Wolfman's money by committing him to a loony bin. And they want Shasta in on it as because she is as close as anyone ever gets to Mickey Wolfman. And now later, that same Sloane Wolfman tells Doc that she and Mickey recently endowed some money to a mental facility in Ojai, the Criscylodone Institute, which Sloane claims is an ancient Indian word that means serenity. Later on, Clancy Sherlock tells Doc that Wolfman was on a guilt trip about taking people's money his whole life. And after taking tons of acid and peyote and feeling bad for making people pay for cheap, ugly housing, he decides that he's going to build a big place out in the desert where people can live for free. He's going to call it Arrepentimiento, which is something Spanish for sorry about that. And doesn't that also sound a lot like Channel View Estates, the same place Bigfoot started a commercial for in the earliest moments of Inherent Vice, hawking a property of Wolfman's that has no buzzkill credit checks and uh, paying rent. If that's not your bag, that's where you can go. Now, Clancy also notes that Puck Beaverton switched with her brother Glenn at the last minute on the day of Mickey's disappearance, and then Puck set sail and Glenn caught a bullet. And setting sail is something actor Burke Stodger, blacklisted in the 1950s for being a communist sympathizer, did on his boat, The Preserved, according to Doc's lawyer, Sancho Smilex. Like Mickey Wolfman, both Stodger and the boat then just disappeared, only to reappear years later. The boat had a new name, the Golden Fang, and was stripped of all traces of her soul. And Stodger's politics suddenly whiplashed from far left to virulently anti-commie far right. And he got his career back and starred in such right-wing films as Commie Confidential. Assange also noted that shortly before disappearing, Wolfman was also seen on the Golden Fang. Sanch also heard that the Department of Justice is trying to squeeze Mickey of that money that he's now so eager to part with to buy a Vegas hotel to muscle out the mob and give themselves a foothold on the strip, a way to kind of the way that they wanted to use Doc to keep eyes on the Black Gorilla family. Now, speaking of law enforcement, that hippie-hating mad dog himself, Bigfoot Bjornsson, tells Doc that the aforementioned Puck Beaverton is also connected to the Koi Harlingen case, as he was seen at the site of Koi's supposed overdose from pure uncut heroin. He also notes that Puck works for Adrian Prussia, a loan shark known for clubbing people to death with baseball bats, much like the bat that knocked Doc unconscious at Channel View Estates. 
And where might that pure, uncut heroin have come from? Jade has confessed to Doc that the Golden Fang isn't a band. It's not even just a boat. It's an Indo-Chinese heroin cartel that brings pure, uncut heroin directly from the battlefields of the Vietnam War to the United States itself for direct distribution. A vertical, integrated package with profits laundered by places like Chick Planet and so-called righteous endeavors like Channel View Estates. And while on the subject of the Golden Fang, let's not forget that our pal Sordalige points out that the term Criscylodone doesn't mean serenity, as Sloan Wolfman tried to assert, but rather means animal tooth made out of gold. And finally, that animal tooth made out of gold, that Golden Fang, that is Criscylodone. That is exactly the booby hatch that one Miss Japonica Finway escaped from, bouncing from one fang to another as she left it to return to the arms of Golden Fang Syndicate Dentist, Dr. Rudy Latinoid DDS. So what was all that for? What was that monolith of a monologue for? What does it all mean? It means that all of these lines of force that gird the plot of Inherent Vice have been leading to this sequence in which they all converge and we recognize the goal of the Golden Fang in a moment that is both simple and complex. The goal is to make American life something to constantly escape from in order to guarantee a steady stream of customers constantly needing to drop out from reality with heroin and then buy a cure for that addiction from the same organization that hooked them in the first place in a never-ending cycle of degradation and exploitation known as modern American living. It all converges here, in which we see Puck Beaverton sitting with a cleaned-up junky Koi Harlingen. It's where we later find the missing Mickey Wolfman under FBI guard and exploitation, haunted by his past, it's where we find the right-wing films of one Burke Stodger playing a 24-hour loop. It's where we see the victims of this vicious kicking the smack that the fang hooked them upon cycle. We see them in the background windows running around trying to escape, just like Japonica Finway desperately tried to escape. It's all right here, the souring of the American fate. It's all right here at the Criscylodone Institute. This is the plot of Inherent Vice, and this is where it announces itself. Now with that, I'm going to hook myself up to an oxygen tank, and we're going to see what Corey thought about all, about, uh, all of that. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think it's, uh, it's an interesting scene for a couple different reasons. Um, I think uh, the Criscylodon Institute um, is... Uh, a sequence, although we're not going to get into this part of it as much today, but uh, is contains one of the biggest diversions from the book. Um, so in some of the streamlining that PTA did, um, basically cut out an entire uh, trip to Las Vegas, which is, yep. I think, where they originally run into Mickey Wolfman. And so basically, in, in some of the compression of the plot to just not have that entire tangent at a movie that's already running, you know, two and a half hours long, um, he we do. We had, also miss Buck Beaverton getting married in Vegas. We miss right, that. right. Um, so there's some other things. So yeah. So in compressing that, it's he just has uh, Mickey Wolfman, you know, uh, at at the actual institute. And so I feel like that um, is a fairly major change, which leads to another change, which is in the book he's kind of walking around talking to Coy 
um, in a scene that probably doesn't add a whole lot to what we've already seen them meet up, um, sure. you know, at the Topanga Canyon house. And so interesting in the deleted scenes is they filmed all that stuff. They filmed There's that. footage They're of them walking, walking around together. the grounds and, and all that stuff. And I think probably in the edit, he realized, well, we don't need two scenes of Doc, you know, talking to somebody, especially if the first one, we're not really learning anything new. And yeah. we really want to build up to this Eric Roberts moment. Um, so I think it's interesting for that reason. Um, it's also interesting um, in some of the ways where, uh, as we were kind of talking about off mic, where it sort of parallels, you know, some things that are uh, a little a little too um, relevant to the time that we're living in right now. Um, the the moment uh, in particular uh, where. Um, Doc uh, sees Puck Beaverton, who has the Nazi uh, swastika <laughs> tattooed on his yeah. head. And there's a really funny exchange, which comes, I think, directly from the book, um, yeah. where uh, the three play uh, Jefferson Mays, who is so great and such a kind of that guy who hasn't been in that many <laughs> movies, but just has such a unique face and presence and just like completely steals the couple of minutes that he's in. Um, where he basically says, you know, uh, it's a Hindu symbol, uh, meaning all is well. All you know, is and it's well. just you have to say it just idea, like that. Um, that basically you're not seeing what you're seeing. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like Doc can see with his very own eyes what he's looking at, um, but he's sort of being told that pay no attention to this yeah. thing you could see with your own eyes. Listen to what I'm saying instead. Well, let's start right there. I think that's a perfect phrase to describe the mentality of the Criscilodone Institute, which is you're not seeing what you're seeing. And as we, you know, you mentioned, as you alluded to, we just said we, we had a chat about this off air. There's something very Trumpian about the Criscilodone Institute to me and about 2020 to me, that idea. No, you're not seeing what you're thinking. You, you, this is fake news. You're not seeing what you think you're seeing. And, you know, this sequence begins with a, a gorgeous shot of the Criscilodone Institute and what is above the door but this slogan straight as hip it's, it's cool to be it's it's cool to be normal it's cool to be straight which it's is not, uh, it's not groovy to be insane right straight exactly is that what straight I noticed hip. you know when I was yeah. re-watching it over the last couple of nights is the straight as hip which also comes directly from the book yeah. directly echoes Martin Short's it is not groovy to be insane you know because he's this. singing he's singing the party exactly. line and so he hears something like it's groovy to be insane no, if, if your entire backbone, such as it is, is made up of straight as hip, you, that, that's going to blow your mind to hear something like that. And of course, as we're looking at straight as hip and we're hearing about how, you know, owing to Governor Reagan's shutdown of most of the state mental facilities, which did happen in 1967, the private sector has been given carte blanche to pick up the slack and turns them all into what uh, Sorliege calls uh, standard California child uh, rearing resource for the super rich, which is right out of, uh, right out of the novel. Uh, much like today's, you know, for-profit prisons. And we we realize that an entire generation is going to be cradled and grown out of buildings like this, emblazoned with these Orwellian doublespeak phrases, like straight as hip, which is just Pynchon's version of war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, or keep America great, transition to greatness, fake news. And... It's, it's like Sanch said when he was talking about how the preserved became the golden fang when it disappeared and came back. This is a horror story. And so much of this film has been building to this. Now, this might not be what it is 
for all of us. And as I've said so many times, yeah, I agree. You know, for me, this story more than anything else, it's about how much you can miss someone. But if you want it to, this is an all out, out and out horror movie. And this is where the idea of that horror coheres. This is where that horror lives in this very banal, very sanitized, very white building in which, from which these noxious, life-destroying ideas are just pumping out like a gas. And they're ideas like make America great again. They are ideas like no, that's fake news. the the guy The guy didn't trip. He was pushed. His he he busted his head because he was he's he's a he's an actor. Don't listen to him. He's an agitator. Don't pay attention to the man with the swastika on his face. And I I, I was rewatching this sequence over and over this week as I was preparing for this episode. And I know I've said this before. I know I've said this a number of times before that when you watch the Golden Fang sequences in this film especially in 2020, it's hard not to go, oh, this is 2020. And again, it's not because Pynchon is a genius and PTA is a genius, even though they are. It's not that they were so hyper-prophetic that in 19, uh, or excuse me, in 2009 and then later in 2014, they were able to predict the America of 2020. It's just that as far as the state of American fascism goes, not much has changed from 1970 to 2020. Those intervening 50 years, honestly, there hasn't been that much progress. There are still these organizations that are that are telling us, hey, straight as hip. It's it's you know, it's not groovy to be insane. Don't be, don't do that. That that's that's not a swastika on that man's face. The president isn't really racist. It's not a dog whistle. And you watch that and you can't help but be, I, I watch this sequence. It is. It's like watching the news. It's like watching the news. Just It just happens to be set at a sanitarium or a booby hatch, as the characters call it. It's That's all it is. And that is so haunting to me. It's it's satisfying on a narrative level because, as I, as I said in that, that monolith of a speech, this is where every brick of the film, from a plot perspective, from the very, very first scene in which we meet Shasta Fay. And she hints that she has heard that someone is trying to ki- kidnap Mickey Wolfman, get him to a booby hatch and take his money and that his wife and her boyfriend are in on it. From that very moment, like it's all been leading to this place to reveal this, this, this horrible, horrible truth. And yeah, it's a funny movie. Yeah, it's a romantic movie. But goddamn, this sequence, it scares the shit out of me. I find it so horrifying. Yeah. I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know if it was that deep an experience for you but the way your wife feels watching any scene from this movie (laughs) that is how i feel when i watch this scene it gives me a sick feeling to my stomach it never did before and i think i've finally just this is you know like a lot of very privileged people this was just finally the year where how wrong things have always been have finally kind of curdled to the surface in a way that cannot be ignored I watch this scene now and it just absolutely fucking terrifies me. And it makes me so goddamn sad sad at the raw deal of what Sorlige calls the American fate. Yeah, I think, you know, part of it is the tale as old as time, cyclical nature of some of these things. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I will say that it, the kind of gaslighting element definitely jumped out this week more than it had, you know, a few years ago um, when I was watching it. Um, 
I will say the thing that I asked you before we started taping, which I just feel like is sort of the, you know, the key, like you, you couldn't have written something with a more precise irony, which is that Steve Mnuchin is a producer on this movie, which is, you <laughs> know, it's kind to, of- I've been waiting for the place to drop <laughs> this and I think the, you found it. <laughs> guy who's kind of the golden fang incarnate um, is also responsible for shepherding, you know, this movie, which is about all of these things. And, you know, that which is just <sighs> a horror, um, you know, it's a not to say thing. cancel Warner Brothers or PTA or the movie or anything <laughs> else. It's simply to say that the world we live in is very murky morally and that and that I just can't kind of think of a sort of more ironic 2020 credit than his name on this movie, you know, just Actually, fascinating. I don't know that it's ironic. It's in a way, I think it, it's, it's more tragic than it is ironic. And it's actually more in keeping with the theme of inherent vice than, than, than maybe we realize because, because if you think about it, the idea that Steve Mnuchin was a financier of inherent vice that this film in part was made because of this sons of bitches existence who Makes was a movie it. producer and made a yeah, bunch of movies yeah. you know all that the context is there before he before he uh, began his career of helping to dismantle uh, the the american dream entirely uh, his participation and his seed his his money helped seed this film and get it made which makes me think so much of how a couple of scenes back when we're meeting japonica finway for the very first time it's made clear that Crocker Fenway, who in many ways ends up becoming like the ultimate villain, the face of ultimate villainry in this film. If Japonica Fenway was Doc's first case, if that was what kicked off his life as a, a licensed PI and started his practice, then Crocker Fenway is the man who invested and funded everything that Doc has done since. And in a way, there, there's a there's right. a no, nobody gets away clean. In you know, that the, the, the traffic tagline, Doc, <laughs> exactly. Doc's entire career as a as a hero, as maybe not a do gooder, but someone who does good, was funded by the Golden Fang itself. And so, in a way, not that I not that I need Steve Mnuchin to exist to give myself this nice little extra thematic layer to 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 find inherent vice. I would do just fine without it. But that is a very, I don't even know if it's irony. I think it's just inherent vicey. It's just right that, uh, well, it's not right, but it, it, it's, it, it's in keeping with everything this film has to say about power and about goodness and about evil and how they intertwine inextricably that much like Crocker Fenway paying to start Doc Sportello's career, that Steve Mnuchin, someone who is a primary figure in the Trump administration, helped pay to get something like Inherent Vice made. It's both mind-blowing and horrible and terrible and disgusting and yet somehow perfectly fitting for everything this film has to say about yeah. power and goodness. Completely. And I'm glad you brought it up, but now I'm also super depressed. <laughs> and well, by the, we're not canceling inherent vice God no, God, no. just, just, we're making that clear we're not canceling inherent vice but we are underlining how insidious the tendrils of organizations like the golden thing are is that you'll look at something so pure and so good that you can or that I anyway can love so much and realize oh well you know this is here 
because Steve Mnuchin was there and he helped, he helped shepherd it into reality. And obviously it would have, I'm sure it would have been made either way, but the fact that he was a part of it, that is just, that's so inherent vice to me. That's so golden thing to me. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it definitely jumped out at me uh, this time. I, I think it's also, um, so saying it was kind of one of the pivotal scenes in that, um, I feel like in order to compress this book, which as you've talked about, sort of he started by adapting literally like page by page into a script that was as big as a doorstop. And yeah. then so when he went through the process of kind of excising the scenes, I feel like starting to compress certain um, characters and locations and kind of bring it a little bit back down to scale. I think he had mentioned um, um, there was a serious interview uh, towards the end of the master um, press tour where he uh i got to ask him a question about oh inherent vice you know what's the hardest part about adapting it and he just said something to the effect of like the book reading the book is like having these bags of gold you know in front of me i can only take so much with me so in order oh, to kind good. of figure out um you know what to lose and and i think he made some really smart decisions where sort of so my experience with the book was so i i saw it those three times you know on uh opening uh, the New York Film Festival. Um, and then basically I, I wasn't able to see it for almost another two months. So what I did was uh, I already had the book, hadn't read it yet, immediately started reading the book. And because the soundtrack is mostly kind of um, 1960s and 70s um, uh, pop tunes, uh, uh, my buddy Jordan Raup, who runs the film stage, had already put together the playlist of all the songs <laughs> in the movie. So I was able to literally kind of live in the world, reading the book and listening to the songs and kind of getting a completely different version of this story that existed a little bit in my memory, you know, from what I remembered from seeing the movie so many times. And then kind of, I wasn't able to see for another couple months. So it was kind of an interesting experience to kind of soak in something and not immediately be able to return to it um so yeah <laughs> what speaking of things that are perfectly inherent vice there is no better inherent vice guest moment when you you've got several paragraphs of something to say then you say it <laughs> and you kind of just go yeah yeah there you go mm. well really quick Moving as far away from Mnuchin as we can very quickly, because yes, I'm still please. depressed about that. I still have a, I'm still hung, I have a hangover from that. Uh, I want to throw back to what you said about, about our man Jefferson. Uh, 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 three please, nervous darting eyes and his little sweat beaded upper lip. Shout out to Jefferson Mays for just so flop sweating his way over this entire scene. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy, I, I, I would think, to to share a scene with someone like Joaquin Phoenix, certainly his generation's most intense actor, to be able to have to, to, to breathe the same air as that and not just like a, like a balloon with all the air let out, just, just fly away because he, he just pops you. He damn near steals this entire sequence from Joaquin Phoenix, or at least until yeah. Puck, be, even, no, not even when Puck shows up, just, that, that nervous, sweaty shift. We know this guy. Totally. We know this guy, both in the fervency of his belief when we see him mouthing the words to Kami Confidential, but also like the nervousness at not entirely knowing if this guy is running some sort of game on him, if, if Doc is, is pulling some, because he's, he's, he's trying to interrogate Doc a little bit, but never in quite uh, an accurate way that he gets anything that is any, in any way substantive. 
the the nervous way he feels Doc's back when he when he first greets him. I don't know if you know he like weirdly pats Doc's back and kind of rubs it like he doesn't know how to interact with another human being or maybe he's just feeling him for a wire I, I'm still I'm still it's still in the air to me exactly what he knows about Doc when he comes in but yeah brief shout out Jefferson Mays no one flop sweats like him on screen and I, I as dark and as harrowing and as scary as this scene is to me he always brings a smile to his to my face with those beady little eyes of his so bless you yes. Jefferson, wherever you are out there we thank you we drink to you <laughs> Totally. I also, I love the little moment when Owen Wilson mouths, what the fuck? I feel like that just belongs on any like <laughs> it Owen makes Wilson, it into the trailer. Like, Oscar career reel, <laughs> you know, it just like seems, it's like the thing that seems like it could be in a non-PTA movie starring Owen Wilson. Yeah. And, yeah. But, and yet it fits perfectly in this world. Um, I think it's um, also interesting. Some of uh, the framing in, in, in the uh, Chris Kyladon sequence, which is that um Basically, earlier in his career, as he was more of a Scorsese and Jonathan Demme disciple, it was, you know, the super wide frame and the showy camera work and the, the whip pans. pans. And as he's kind of gotten older and more mature, he's now the dad that has Turner Classic movies on all day, every day. And so <laughs> yes, his movies yes, have taken does. on, you know, a, 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 a slower pace and a boxier frame and things like that. So I feel like um, a couple notable moments for me, like this, when he he's basically less showy camera work now for the most part than he was earlier in his career. But there are a few touches of stylization in this movie in particular that I feel like are pretty unique in his career and feel almost more Wes Anderson in their mm -hmm. framing than, than PTA, which is, you know, the arrival at the Chris Kyledon Institute, you know, where they have straight as hip on the building and it's shot very, you know, straight on and yeah. dead center framing. Um, and then I noticed, I was rewatching, there's a couple other instances in the movie that also have a similar framing. And it's um, when Sloan Wolfman walks right into the Jimmy Wong How lighting yeah. and she's lit perfectly and she's dead center in the frame. Um, and there's uh, the scene at the end when they're doing the handoff um, with the family. And again, that's kind of shot flat against the wall and all these figures are standing there in a row. And the thing you realize about all of those moments is um, they're kind of basically all with people supposedly of the straight world persuasion, but they're all people oh, and places not yes, to be yes, trusted. Yes, yes. So yes. it's like figures uh, of authority or sort of um, who would pass in daily life as someone you could look up to and respect, but in all cases kind of are basically not to be trusted. Oh, I love it when this happens. <laughs> I love it when this happens. I love it. When I've watched this movie so many damn times and then someone will throw something like that at me that I'm like, yeah, you're exactly right. And I never caught it. Oof. That, just gave, me, that just gave me a little woo-woo-woo Because buzz. In, in Doc's world, you know, as with PTA's more normal aesthetic, is the camera work is much looser. You know, yeah. it, it's it's more free-flowing. And in Doc's office, the compositions are are almost so starkly minimal and ugly that they're beautiful again. You know, yeah. some of the angles and the close-ups when he's in his office. And so it's these couple of moments that stick out and you just, you know, it was only this time that it clicked where you're going, well, PTA is not a filmmaker to go, let me just step outside of my own personal style guide for a Wes Anderson shot yeah. here, yeah. unless it is doing unless something it for the story. Something. And yeah. so it was only this time that I realized, oh, actually every time that's occurring, it's with one of these characters or one of these places where you're kind of supposed to feel unsettled. Sure. It is, you know, sort of so straight laced and aligned in a way that um, when the rest of the movie isn't, it falls out of step with that. So exactly. Oh God. I love that. Oh boy. All right. We got to go back and rewatch this again.
another thing that I love about the the composition of this sequence before we go any deeper into the thematic horrors of it is like you said you know the other Anderson Wes Anderson you know a guy who is very very meticulous about curating his sequences and as you said you know would shoot that would shoot he would shoot this as PTA to like dead on something else that uh that he does and is it packs the frame with detail and I feel that that's and it's certainly I don't think something that PTA took from Wes Anderson for this film. I think it's something he took from the prose of Thomas Pinchon. But this this film is each frame is packed densely with information that kind of yep. matches the highly the highly referential uh, pop culturally referential prose of Pinchon. And I love how that lends itself to total Abram Zucker sight gags more mm-hmm. than anything else. And is chasing each other out the window. Those things that very much in that kind of airplane naked gunway that no one in the scene comments on. It just happens. And it happens in a way that like maybe you're going to see it and maybe you're not. But yeah, when they're walking into the administrative lounge and you just see, uh, you just see these guys, these guys getting chased uh, or how at the very, very beginning you see uh, when we see that straightest hip and you see Doc go in all of a sudden, there's two two guys in these very beautific robes, and they're carrying Uzis. Mm-hmm. There's, I, I just, I adore that that that, and again, that goes back to what we were saying, what feels like seven hours ago when we were talking about the tonal shifts of this film. The fact that you have the ultimate of a, a the ultimate epicenter of generational horror located here, but you also have some of the funniest sight gags in the movie. Yeah, and I think it could have been one note. It could have been that movie. And instead, he sort of treats it like a spice that tastes very good, uh, but you don't want too much of. And so he's kind of sprinkling it around the margins while not letting it sort of take center stage. And I think that was something that I'm sure the exact you know proportions of came together in the edit. Because if Josh Brolin described just the complete insanity on the set, you know, it was him kind of conceiving of a movie that had enough of that anywhere he wanted to put it but could also pull back when he needed to and so um it does make scenes like that so fun when you just see the kind of orderlies chasing the you know inmates you know through the window as jefferson mays is introducing him very calmly to what a great (laughs) facility this is and it's kind of just you know insanity in the background no no speaking of insanity in the background something needs to be addressed for the five people on the planet that would actually follow something like this and walk around with this in their head. Got to throw this out. That is not Thomas Pinchon sitting in the administrative lounge. A lot of people make a thing about this uh, when they first walk in and, and uh, three please uh, is pointing out, we have this, we make our own wine, blah, blah, blah. Uh, You see a very shaky woman named Kimberly pouring, uh, uh, pouring something for a Dr. Igor. Dr. Igor, rather, and admittedly, this dude looks a lot like the very, very he does, yeah, pictures of Thomas Pinchon that exist. Those very, very early pictures of Pinchon as a young man, he looks a little, looks a little goofy. Uh, this guy looks a lot like those. However, Dr. he's an Igor, actor. I had to look him up myself. Charlie Morgan. Sure. Charlie yep. Morgan. He's a uh, He's kind of a smaller, smaller actor, uh, bit parts in films like Wolf of Wall Street. He shows up as a lawyer in The Master. 
He's in uh, Lincoln. Probably his most substantive role, I think, is uh, he, if any Sopranos fans out there, you're going to remember him as the crotchety old man that Uncle June constantly butts heads with when Uncle June is put in the nursing home. 20-year-old spoiler. Uh, and in it, what's interesting is that in, he uh, did an interview after the film came out because people, people were convinced this was Pinchon. And he had to do an interview. He did a podcast interview. He was like, no, no, seriously. I'm, I'm a guy. I'm on IMDb. You can, you know, I'm, I'm a real person. You can see me on Facebook. Uh, and he, he claims that to be good friends with PTA. And that he says he asked PTA if Thomas Pinchon was in the film. And he says that PTA explicitly told him no. No, he was not. And that, of course... That runs counter. That runs. <laughs> what, what some other actors have said. <laughs> you know, Brolin has said, uh, I don't, uh, he's like, I, you know, I think Brolin, uh, how do you say? He said, uh, I don't think anybody knew, but that he, uh, he came on as kind of the mer- mercurial iconoclast that he is. He stayed in the corner and no one noticed. And then most interestingly, when PTA was asked about this for the New York Times, he just kind of erupted. He's like, I'm staying out of it. <laughs> he said, he said, uh, no, no, I just, uh, look, somebody spent a long time deciding not to have themselves out there. There's a reason for that. So I'm just going to step out of that. Uh, which by the way, I got to point out, that's not a no, that's not a no. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. And I think he knows he's being <laughs> playful, which is why he won't yeah. even come out and kind of give a straight up denial because this cast is basically contradicting him. And I think in, don't know if it was that or a different interview that Joaquin basically says that um, they were frequently in touch. So if you wonder about oh God, the pressure, <laughs> the pressure of you which, know the which first filmmaker it? to ever adapt this literary giant, and he made these big changes to the book, and he took out whole sections, and he condensed characters and plots, and was he okay with it? And Joaquin's basically like, yeah, they were like in touch throughout the adaptation. So like any of those changes. He was basically, you know, working with him on, if not, you know, signing off on. So it's um, so funny that Joaquin said that because that was brought up to PTA in a later interview who had to do it all over again. Who was basically like, God damn it. Yeah, yeah. He, and he's like, Yeah, you can't he, trust him. Yeah, he's like, Well, he's like, Joaquin doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. He's just an actor. Come on. Although Which is, you're, you're not seeing what you're seeing. You're not hearing what you're hearing about pension. Yeah. He's, <laughs> Corey, oh my. Yeah. Exactly. You, you pay no attention to the, the swastika on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, say, uh, passing papers back together. One of my favorite anecdotes about the making of Inherent Vice was PTA did an interview on NPR and they asked him point blank. They're like, look, is, is, is Pinchon in this? Not, they didn't just, no, they didn't ask. They didn't say, is Pinchon in the film? They just said, did you collaborate? Did you work on this? Did you even, did you ever even speak to the yeah, man? Contact. Just talk to his people? Was it just the man? What was it? And he gives this amazing anecdote as his answer to whether or not did I, PTA, work with Thomas Pinchon, one of the greatest artists of, of his century. And his response was, no, no, you know, I mean, maybe, but maybe I don't know. There's a famous, <laughs> there's a famous story, B. Traven. He was another writer who nobody knew who he was. And he wrote this book called The Treasure of the Sierra Madre that the film was based on. And the rumor goes that like, you know, down in Mexico, John Houston, the director of Sierra Madre, he would get pages mysteriously slipped under his door. By who? Maybe B. Traven? Or maybe they'd be shooting on some streets in Mexico and they'd look over and see some mysterious man in a hat and sunglasses watching from a distance. Was that B. Traven? Who knows? 
Obviously, Pinchon is a flesh and blood person who exists, who wrote a book, but he spent a lot of his life, his entire professional career deciding, I don't want to be part of whatever the spotlight is. And that's groovy with me, <laughs> which is PTA's official statement on did yeah. I work with Thomas Pinchon is I love it. He goes, who's that guy across the street with sunglasses and the hat? Is that him? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I think I, the two interesting things. One is the um, treasure of the Sierra Madre famously incredibly important to BTA as he supposedly watched it like every night while he was making the yeah. OB blood. And he said he would eat uh, a, a steak meal of steak and, and, and vodka. vodka. And that's yeah. what he wanted the movie to feel like to just soak in kind of the, the vibe of that movie. And the other thing is just with that kind of story and PTA's kind of non-committal denial is just like his sort of playful anarchic sensibility that I think sort of, you know, in in a grander way comes down from his dad, who is Goulardi, the horror host yeah, on TV. Yeah. And, you know, was kind of a counterculture, you know, weirdo, you know, who kind of broke <laughs> all the rules as a late night host, you know, of horror stuff. And I feel like that sensibility, whether it's, you know, the guy throwing the firecracker in Boogie Nights or whether it's the orderlies running in the background, like I think he likes to, um, he doesn't want it to be too stuffy. He wants to undercut the seriousness. He wants it to be playful. So it's not just with this specific movie he decided I, I need to have, you know, the Zucker or Abrams, you know, airplane energy in the margins. It's, I think that's something you can find running through his work. And, you know, in The Master, when I interviewed him for that, you know, basically asked him if he sort of um, opened and, and closed the movie, you know, with such unexpectedly, you know, funny. It's like Joaquin kind of humping, you know, the sand woman and the, the <laughs> yeah. thing about it falling out at the end. It just going like, did you sort of open the movie with that? Again, not in the script or any script I ever saw sure. as a way to kind of undercut people's expectations it was going to be some really serious movie about Scientology it was going to be really heavy drama and um I don't think he'd ever you know intellectualized it in that way I just think it's sort of where his instincts take him as a filmmaker and kind of uh adding in touches like that and I guess even you know in certain interviews when he doesn't want to give the answer you know <laughs> telling a, an anecdote that takes you down a rabbit hole instead well I mean certainly he knows the answer to this question as to whether or not Thomas Pinchon is <laughs> oh, in yeah. this film but what I think is also interesting uh, interesting about his filmmaking is I think there are sometimes maybe he doesn't know and I think that's what's so interesting about like as you said with it with that great example of how the master is bookended by this these very bizarre sexual uh moments with Freddie Quell and, you know, that maybe he didn't, you know, is that something that you sit down and you, you make concrete? You're like, all right, I'm going to have awkward sexual encounters with Freddie Quell beginning in this film because it will undercut this or it'll make it seem like that. And it reminds me, and I, I can't remember if I've said this on the show before. I thought there was a, a really great description of, and I don't even know if we're allowed to talk to talk about him on a, a pinch on show, but uh, there was a really great description in the New Yorker like 20 or 30 years ago about Don DeLillo, a contemporary of Pinchon's, and his agent, or his editor, excuse me, was talking about DeLillo, whose books are these very icy, penetrating portraits of post-war America, some of the most lyrical and haunting and, and, and terrifying and funny American books written in the 20th century. And, and, and they're just works of absolute genius. And his, his, his editor or his agent was asked, you know, how, how does he do it? How does, how, does, how does he pull this off? How does a human being write like this? And he's like, well, the way I've always rationalized Don's psyche in my mind is this. Half of his brain is just a regular guy. 
who likes beer and pizza and hot dogs and goes to see a baseball game every weekend. That's Don. And then the other half of his brain is occupied by a literary genius. And I don't think that the two of to the two halves ever communicate with one another. And I kind of something I feel like that's I feel like that's an apt description of, even though I haven't met the man, of the PTA psyche, which is one half of him is this guy that thinks Big Daddy is the greatest film of the 1990s, <laughs> right. right? And then the, But then the other half is this guy who will construct something like There Will Be Blood or will construct something like The Master, which as much as I love Inherent Vice and as much as Inherent Vice is my favorite PTA film and one of my favorite films of all time, I feel like if God made a movie, it would probably be awful close to The Master. That's as close to cinematic perfection as we are probably going to see in this generation. And I don't feel like those halves of his brain communicate that much, except in a film like, say, Inherent Vice, when you have the Coke Kid half and the Weed Dad half talking to each other. But I don't think that as we keep, as we, it's a riff I think we keep hitting in this, this episode is, I think he's such an instinctual filmmaker now that yes. those bookends would maybe never actually consciously occur to him. It would just feel right. Like a jazz musician. It just, 100%. that's, that's it the feels note. Right. He opened with a note like that. Yeah. So he should probably close the set with a note like that. Why not? Doesn't that kind of symmetry just make sense? And it's, it's funny that people like myself will build an entire podcast about choices like that. And you ask him about it. He'd probably be like, no, I don't know. Just, Bill right, man. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And I think when you probably are such an instinctual filmmaker, probably why he probably enjoyed most interviews less and less is he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't want to be nailed. You know, he doesn't yeah. want to have to tell you what the movie is. You know, he doesn't want you to dig into his biography. He doesn't want to answer yes or no about what it means. I think he wants you to watch the movie and feel what he put into it. Um, a, a quick aside, which is a is kind of interesting as you mentioning Don DeLillo is that um, when Paul was in college uh, and his teacher was um, David Foster Wallace, um, he actually turned Paul on to Don DeLillo yeah, and had like him white write noise, a paper. Right? Yes, on yeah. white noise. Right, exactly. And so I think he, See, it all comes together. Yeah, we, it see, all comes together. In, 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 inherent vice and increment vice fashion, we take the long way around, but it always, it always, well, maybe for the most part, it always locks up and comes back. We're doing this on purpose, I promise. <laughs> We're doing seriously. It's all so, scripted. Oh yeah. Oh boy. Uh, one little beat I want to say about this scene is, if there's one thing that can kind of drive me a little batty, I get when you haven't seen this film, you go into this film going, "Oh, it's gonna be as long. It's gonna be as long goodbye. It's gonna be as big goodbye. It's gonna be as long goodbye." He's an Altman guy, so of course this is long goodbye. And this is this film is absolutely nothing like the long goodbye. I do love though, as a man who does love the long goodbye, that I love the symmetry of our detective surreptitiously working his way into a booby hatch to get the man that this entire mystery stems from, just like Marlowe sneaking in to get Roger Wade away from the icy grip of Dr. Verringer. I love that this this does feel like PTA's little long goodbye moment. Even though it was already in the book, it wasn't written by him. It wasn't created by him. I do love the symmetry of having Doc sneak in through Chris Kylodone to see if he can get Mickey Wolfman, even though he doesn't know Wolfman is there, get Mickey Wolfman away from the evil Dr. Threepley. That tickles me pink. I absolutely love it. I have no commentary beyond that other than I love the little, I love the the symmetry of that, of, uh, of the Altman 
the Altman PTA symmetry of that. It tickles. Yeah, me. and I think that was kind of the most frequently brought up when people assumed, oh, he's you know he's doing this book, and it's kind of a mush mouth detective, a riff on you know classic. Um, uh, detective stories, it's definitely going to be his long goodbye homage. And he kind of brushed it off with a basically like, yes, I've seen that movie 500 times, but I didn't rewatch it to make this <laughs> just because it's all it's already in my blood. So I didn't kind of need to look at it to see how I might pay homage. So I think those are the kind of things that just sort of are in his DNA at this point. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, as I said earlier, when I watched Phantom Thread, a film that has opaqueness in its DNA, or at least seemingly so. Uh, it wasn't until the the final stretch that I was like, oh, that's what the whole movie's about. I've argued at length in this episode that this is the sequence that where that at least the plot is made clear. At least the plot is made clear. There's so many other convoluted thematic issues and character issues that need to be worked out. But right here in this sequence, for me anyway, is where, oh, well, this is everything. This is everything coming together. In any of the times you've watched this film, did you have that moment? Not, not the moment, like I said, with Phantom Thread, where, oh, this is everything the movie is about in terms of artistic intent. Was there a beat where you finally were like, oh, I get the plot now? Like that, That's something that so many people have a hard time getting their arms around. Again, not that phantom thread moment oh this is intent this is what pta made the movie for but at least with inherent vice the plot exists if for nothing else a delivery system for these emotions that he wants us to feel and it's a very tricky delivery system for a lot of viewers and because of that they don't they don't fully embrace the feelings that it gives them and i got i'm again i'm sounding like an inherent vice character saying this but <laughs> Was there a moment, was it, was it this moment? Did this moment ever stand out to you as that? Or was there any other part of the film where you're finally like, I get it, I see now. I, this, it all connects. I see the lattice, I see it clearly. Um, I can't remember exactly. I do know that, so during that period where I couldn't see the movie, it was a couple months, um, I read the book, um, I listened to the soundtrack, and I basically wrote a piece for the playlist uh, when they were with IndieWire, which was basically like, you know, the six biggest changes in the adaptation. So I think probably at some point during that, when I was kind of reading the book, seeing and, you know, thinking a lot about from what I could remember of the movie, the ways in which the plot diverged and stuff that it sort of um, crystallized into place. So then when I saw it, you know, a couple more times, I more or less could follow the plot part of it and was just going for the ride. Um, I saw it. Um, I think you mentioned this a while ago, but the Brooklyn Academy of Music, BAM, did this amazing series in 2014 when the movie was coming out called Sunshine Noir. And it was probably oh. like the best rep lineup I've ever seen. It just like getting a chance to see so many things on the big screen again. I saw the Long Goodbye, I saw Heat, I saw Jackie Brown, I saw the Vice screening, I saw you know Re what? Repo Man, I saw I'm Kiss Me proud. Deadly. I'm I very saw, proud to live yeah. in LA, but oh. <laughs> yeah, it was mm. truly- that, that hurts me, it hurts me New York got that, yeah. hurts me. Um, truly amazing, and um, so <laughs> I don't remember why I got on that tangent. So, so yeah, so I saw it then, and then I think I saw it again on my birthday at a press screening, and then so I literally had seen it I think five times before it came out. And then when it came out, I saw it, I was on a trip to LA at the Arclight Dome for like the sixth time. And I, I can't remember exactly <laughs> when in there, like all the plot Bless pieces clicked, but probably after the first three and just reading the book and just trying to remember everything about the movie and what was different. I, I think I pieced 
piece the the what why and where together during yeah. that but I, I don't think it was one specific scene it was just kind of um the the book honestly probably helping uh with the movie well what's fascinating to me about that and while for me this is the scene that does that it is interesting how it, it's like no two inherent vice viewing stories are alike this film <laughs> comes to people in so many different ways and makes sense to them finally in so many different ways uh, a few episodes back talking to the great the great uh, Matt Zoller cites, and he still doesn't get it. Like he still doesn't get the plot. Like and it, doesn't he, care, and he loves no, it. Absolutely does. I mean, that's his thing. It's like you know, plot. He, who gives a shit? But he can at least probably tell you what the plot is, or have a sense of what the plot is of something like that he's written about so much, like like Deadwood or Mad Men or Sopranos. With this film, he legitimately doesn't know. Like he's, I don't know, I don't get it. But I, I'm fine with that because he gets the emotions of that, that thing we talked about earlier. The emotions that PTA wants you to feel, the idea of themes, the idea that something is underlined. And I think Matt is also the kind of viewer, he, he can put in what he needs to be underlined in this film and make and that matter for himself. That's PTA's ideal viewer, honestly. Exactly. As I was watching yeah. it this week, what I kept thinking about in some of these scenes is just, you can't focus on what is being said because of the way it's being delivered to you. Now, some of that is Joaquin's like, you know, mush mouth delivery. Some of that is just when you're getting a long take scene where a camera is slow pushing in instead of doing a two shot, you know, a cut sure. between each character to emphasize a line of dialogue, to show you what to pay attention to. The movie is kind of asking you to zone out on this. And I think PTA, it is completely by design and intention that you do so because he doesn't really give a shit about following, you know, each, you know, string on the web either, but he does give a shit about you being on the emotional current of the movie. And so I think, you know, Matt Seitz, I would think would be kind of the viewer that PTA most <laughs> wants, which is someone yeah. who completely goes with it and doesn't care that it, yes, it does add up, but it's okay if you're lost because that's really not in the foreground. You can trust that it adds up. You can right. trust that it does. People out there, and I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you, if you didn't like the plot of this film, or at least this, what you got of the plot of this film, but you can trust that, yes, it does add up, and it does. And as we, we, start, to, we start to wind things down, we would be remiss if we did not talk about the Dean of Mean Jardine, <laughs> Puck Beaverton, after hearing about him in that very strange inherent vice way where we keep, people keep talking about a character as if we know who that character is. Right. Constantly talking about a character. Uh, yeah, fucking zoinks. I know Adrian Prussia. Well, we don't. Yeah, exactly. And finally, we see him here. And I got to say, not quite, but almost totally dead center when we first see him. I think we see, I, I think we see him, enough of him in his face to know that we can't trust him no matter what. We, but mm -hmm. he almost gets that straight as hip, dead on, dead center, Sloan, Sloan Wolfman right in the center of the camera uh, shot. The as if the swastika. There wasn't enough of a clue that maybe as, we shouldn't trust this guy. As if maybe this, <laughs> this, this hulking beast with cauliflower ear and a symbol of hate tattooed into his into his his burly, hairy, craggy flesh, as if as if he might be might not be suspicious enough as is. Thankfully, PTA gives us that dead on shot. I think that this is one of the weirdest and best character intros. One of the most obviously foreboding and ominous character intros in the entire film 
you know, a lot of these characters, they do get some kind of almost trumpets flourish eventually, whether it's Martin Short with his velour suit and the going full Martin Short or Japonica Fenway losing her mind in that, that, and, and the scene frenetically speeding up around her. There is something, again, that adds to the horror of this moment that we just see him lurking there obviously up to no good and giving zero shits of how about how palpable that is because he's he's so powerful that it doesn't matter if you know he's a bad guy he doesn't care if you know he's a bad guy to see him there lazy like like the cat that's going to kill a mouse just lazily confident rolling up and down as if almost teasing doc uh the the tie with shasta fey painted naked upon right like just like a cat lazily playing with a mouse before the kill. There is something so threatening about that and disturbing about that to me that is so in tune with, again, something like a character from the film, so in tune with the vibrations of the scene, the wrongness of this place. And it's like he is, he is at the seat of all wrongness of Chris Skylodone, this, this monster at the heart of it, playing with this tie that has the woman that Doc loves more than anything else upon his chest. And there sits, as you said, Threepley doing that, again, that Trumpian logic, that false moral equivalency uh, uh, and sweeping under the rug uh, something, redesignating something hateful as something else entirely. Uh, and again, in, the, in that very Trumpian way of even the, even though the liar and the person being lied to both know what is being said is a lie, totally. it's still said anyway about this monster, which again, I, I don't want to keep beating this drum uh, and being so hyper-political, but I think it's hard not to be when you're talking about the Golden Fang. That so feels like 2020 to me, where even the, the, the person lying to you knows that you know yeah. that this is a lie, but they say it to you still with the same conviction and the same <sighs> expectation that you accept it. Exactly. I said, it's, it's just a stand-in for all of these people who have no shame and will say it to your face with a smile. They don't have to believe it and neither do you. And they're just, they're just going to put it out there and, 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 and just live with the lie. And so will you and you'll both nod there uh, politely. And then finally, 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 if they think, okay, this, it's, just, it's not landing, it's not landing, the lie is not landing, they just go, well, maybe you just shouldn't look. Just mm -hmm. don't look. Just in the end just don't look look away if it bothers you uh, yeah I, I forget exactly how he says it but you, you, maybe you shouldn't pay attention to that man at all if, if it's so disturbing to you um and, I, yeah that, that, that's go go ahead i was just gonna say that there's something about that that is so right now as so much of this whole entire sequence is that reminds i think you know we're, we talk about tonal whiplashes in the film the film's mood being something that's a little hard to get your hands on entirely because it's, it encompasses so many different moods. This is that moment again where it makes you go realize what a horror story some of this is. And you feel that, ang that anger that just radiates in waves from the book at people like this, in organizations like this. And the fact that people like Doc were not strong enough at the time to see it and stop it before it was too late. And... Yeah, that makes you sit and think about right now and what we're going through and is it too late and stuff like that that just it scares the hell out of me every single time it scares the hell out of me yeah i think um both filmmaking and adaptation wise there's a couple interesting things um 
filmmaking wise, as much as I said, there's a great chunk of the movie and the following A to B to C plot points where he does not go out of his way to make it clear or underline. This is actually one of the scenes where he does. So it's one of the yeah. couple points in the movie where he does, he gives you a big close up uh, on Puck's face and he gives you a big close up on that tie and Shasta being on it. He wants you to connect these dots. Even if you don't quite know what it all means yet, who is this guy? Why does he have this tie? You know, whatever. He wants you to make that much of a connection. And the only other time in the movie where I feel like he really sort of holds your hand a little bit is when he uses the overlay of Jenna Malone explaining about the teeth when they're exactly, walking through the dentist's exactly. office. That's the only Ex other time yeah. where like all these names and places and people you don't know yet, he'll kind of go, I'm going to give you this. This, yeah. is, this one's important. <laughs> Pay attention for this. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is it, in the adaptation, um, it, the tie is there, but it's an orderly. It's not Puck. So yeah. I think Puck happens on the Vegas journey or somewhere else. Yes. Um, but it isn't where he meets him. So another, I think, smart way to kind of condense that. Sure. Um, and meet that character who, you know, reappears, you know, towards the end uh, in such an important scene. Well, that brings up an important point that I did want to bring up which is the fact that Puck is wearing the tie. And I think part of that is, is narrative expediency where we're folding and collapsing things. We, PTA is folding and collapsing things from the book uh, to get them onto the screen without having to take, give us a 30 minute subplot in which we go to Vegas and meet Puck Beaverton, who's getting married to his cellmate for prison. In this scene, or in this, in this version of the story, yeah, he's just wearing the tie and we can maybe what we can do is we can infer, well, that's probably the tie Mickey was wearing the day he disappeared because he was with Shasta that day. And maybe he's this, that kind of Trumpian asshole, God, it keeps coming back to him, uh, that would wear the tie of the woman he's squiring about that day, like property. He would wear his Shasta tie when he's out with Shasta and Puck would just take it when they're, they're doing the booby house snatch on Mickey. Now, the way I've kind of viewed it more so lately is as someone who's listened to the show, you've, you've probably heard this, this growing thread in the second half of the film and, and the episodes pertaining to the second half of the film, talking about Doc's culpability as a man and as a romantic partner to Shasta Faye. And the fact that it starts to feel more and more like Doc has a bit of a dark side when it comes to Shasta Faye in terms of his culpability in the relationship's collapse and in terms of how he views Shasta Faye and who, she, who he views her to be and who she really is. And that a lot of Doc's problems perhaps stem from the fact that he, he sees Shasta Faye as one woman. And as she, I think, kind of desperately tries to get across in a, in a later scene to him, that she is someone else entirely. And there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of jealousy. And I think that there's kind of a lot of anger in Doc at times. And I wonder... And, and perhaps I'm going nowhere with this, but I wonder if there's a very, very strange look on Doc's face when he kneels next to Threepley and he sees that tie around this man's neck. And I wonder if, if that look is just one simply of recognition from when Jade said, oh, you know, Puck Beaverton's got a swastika tattoo. It's his, his, it was throbbing. And then here's about Puck Beaverton again uh, from Bigfoot Bjornsson in the Japanese restaurant. I also wonder if there's this moment here where he's looking at this man and that dark side is taking him to those suspicions about what she's done in her absence and, and his own absence in her life. Why is this guy wearing this tie? What does he know? What has he done? Has, the, has Puck and Shasta, has there been something there? And again, 
I don't know if that goes anywhere, but I, I, I do find fascinating this idea that we're talking about culpability. We're talking about the Golden Fang uh, funding the seed money for Doc's PI business. We're talking about Steve Mnuchin uh, funding this film. There's There seems to be a darkness inherent in even the good things that we love. And I wonder about Doc in this moment. And I wonder what he's thinking and how, how weirdly toxically masculine and jealous he might be becoming when he's looking at the tie. Or if it's simply like, oh, hey, there's the bald dude with a tattoo. They told me to look out for that guy. Cool, cool. Um, that's a good question. I, I, I have not picked up on it that way, but I certainly wouldn't begrudge anyone who had that reading of it. I think it's a movie about a lot of characters playing dress up. You know, at several points in the movie, Doc is kind of putting on the dress to go to the nice restaurant. <laughs> He's putting on the, you know, the Afro. He's kind of moving through different worlds. And I think um, both um, Penny and Shasta kind of have the inverse where Penny is kind of in her day to day. We see her as the person who's very dressed up and put together at the DA's office. And yet she's so relaxed and chill in that scene at Doc's yeah. place. Whereas Shasta we think of as the opposite, is the person who her natural state is the naked hippie chick. And this is how she shows up in the t-shirt at Doc's place. Um, and so he doesn't see her as the one wearing the, you know, the flatland gear and hanging out with the real estate developers. I don't know that the movie really comes down on one is right or wrong. I think mm -hmm. it sort of shows all the characters as putting on these costumes to move through these different worlds. And I, sure. I, if it were me personally, I would think Shasta's more natural state is the kind of dressed down hippie chick. And she sort of dresses up to put on a new, you know, um, a new life. Whereas Penny is kind of the reverse of that. You know, she dresses down to hang with Doc and let her hair down. Well, hell, they're giving me something else here that, that, that actually is interesting when you filter Puck through that, because in this scene, he is dressed like someone who believes straight is hip. He, he's, he's dressed like someone who buys into that because he's dressing like he looks like he's dressing as to what his idea of how Mickey Wolfman would dress. And I, I don't know if that means anything, but he's dressed like a businessman. He's dressed like a straight world guy. And as we as we see him later in his element, this is not his style. His style is mesh T-shirts uh, and, and tight jeans. But in this scene, he's, it's like he is, he, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's showing us that he is a part of this evil and corrupted belief system, that he is part of this organization and that he is willing to, to wear the, wear the clothes, the straight, he's willing to dress like a straight world agent of the Golden Fang to wear the suit, to wear the Wolfman tie, to be a right. part of that world when he's in that world and to embrace that world, just the way, and, and to smuggle to and again, here we go. I'm going to connect it to 2020 again and to a certain character in politics uh, to smuggle his hate into an ill-fitting suit with an overlong tie uh, because that's the suit. That's, the, that's what you dress to be one of those people. That's what you dress to work in that world. And that's how you smuggle your hate in as a pipeline through that world is by, by dressing, by being a wolf, but dressing yourself up like a sheep. Even if it's so clear from the giant throbbing swastika on your face that you are indeed a wolf but you wear um, the sheep's clothing. And to smuggle it everywhere because there's yeah. also the Aryan Brotherhood at the Topanga, uh, the Topanga Canyon party. And Tariq mentions that they've he's had to kind of work with them as well because yeah. you know they have the parts where their politics align. You know, they black power share similar thoughts about the United States the government. government. Right, exactly. And so I think it's, yeah, I think it's all those things. Well, last note on this beat for hardcore PTA stands out there. Keep your ears perked up when you watch this scene when uh, when Puck is rolling and unrolling that tie. There is a track that it was not released on the soundtrack that is used in this scene. It's called Puck Beaverton's Blues. 
and people with super sharp eyes are going to see a song of the same name in the closing credits to Phantom Thread. I'm not going to tell you where it's at, but you hear this, this you hear the Puck Beaverton theme song reused in Phantom Thread. Go, go check it out. You deserve to watch Phantom Thread again anyway. On that note, I have to say that, Corey, this has been an absolute blast. I, I have had so much fun talking about this scene, and I am so glad that you were here to lead me through it because I think it is so complicated and that I needed someone who would create something as, as harrowing and as challenging and as, as exciting and potentially soul-crushing as the, the cinephile card game. I needed someone <laughs> like you to lead me through this complicated scene, and I so, so, so appreciate you coming on and doing this with me today. Uh, thanks, Travis. I really appreciate it. Uh, I just wanted to leave you with one last anecdote, which feels uh, somewhat um, fitting for this movie, um, which is, as I mentioned, you know, many years ago when I was writing for Cigarettes and Red Vines, and I was on the master beat for a couple years, and we were doing our um, Making the Master series, and I was talking to PTA's producer, Joanne Seller, and she told me that they were getting, they were gearing up for Inherent Vice. And that was just so exciting. I couldn't wait because, you know, it had been five years in between um, Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood. And it had been another five years between There Will Be Blood and The Master. And so that he was going to turn this next movie around in two years was just like incredible, you know, so exciting. Um, and so during that time, um, basically I received word from uh, someone in the business, basically, that gave me um, the news that Warner Brothers was gonna be financing the movie and shooting started that month. I think this was April of 2013. Mm. And so I was still um, writing for Sigs and Vines. And so I, I think I was out getting my hair cut or something. So I was like kind of almost running home in the East Village, just like, oh my God, I've got this huge news. I couldn't be more excited. Like, cause the movie had been talked about for the last three or four years. Cause when the master was having trouble getting off the ground in like 2010, 2011, was kind of announced he's adapting inherent vice yeah. and it was that was when robert downey jr was maybe going to be the doc sportello and what ended up happening is annapurna came through and they got the financing for the master and so we still wanted to make that first which thank god because then we got the master but then the inherent vice because it took so long to get the master off the ground was basically ready to go you know so they could do them not quite back to back but much closer than his previous couple films um so basically, uh, it was very exciting. And so the fact that it was actually, actually happening, you know, after three or four years, it was filming and Warner Brothers was financing it, a major studio. We'd never worked with them before. Um, so I was kind of, you know, lightly walking home at, at a brisk pace to post this news on the <laughs> website, kind of break it to all the other PTA fans. And as I'm walking through the East Village, I hear a very familiar voice. Um, and I kind of look up, you know, from my phone or whatever I was texting or doing at the time. And there's two, you know, young women walking in front of me. And I just listen, stopped to tune in just for half a second. And the voice is Joanna Newsom. And I literally never bother anybody, you know, New York, you see famous people all the time. You let them live their lives. And I think I was just feeling such a high from this inherent vice news. <laughs> I, she kind of, you know, looked over at me for a second. I said, oh my God, you know, something, something embarrassing. Oh my God, you know, I love your music. I'm so sorry to bother you, whatever. And that was basically the end of it. You know, her friend kind of gave me a dirty look and she kind of nodded and that was about the end of it. And that couple months later, you know, I would open up my computer and yep. see that Joanna Newsom was going to be in the movie. Oh. <laughs> 
which had not been announced, you know, not beforehand. So and then on the very same day, I kind of found out that Inherent Vice was happening. I would run into her on the street. I just thought it was too um, too much cosmic weirdness not to tell on this <laughs> of all podcast. That, there is no home for that story except for a place like Increment Vice. That is a pure Inherent Vice anecdote. That, that is pure Inherent Vice magic right there. Thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate that. And again, I appreciate you coming on. Do me a favor. Tell everyone where they can find you. Tell everyone where they can find Cinephile Card Game. Help them out. Get them to that. Um, yeah, you can find me. Um, I'm at ModAge, M-O-D-A-G-E on Twitter. Um, and if you're interested, um, at Cinephile Game uh, or CinephileGame.com, you can check out. Um, we have some really cool uh, game nights coming up, all for good causes. We also have... Um, some live streams we've done over the past couple months that you can check out. We had um, David Lowry, Alex Ross Perry, uh, the Blank Check podcast, uh, Leonard Malton, um, Little White Lies, uh, Brightwell Dark Room. We've had a lot of really cool um, and very smart and knowledgeable film people. So if you um, want to watch one of those, feel free. Uh, most of the charities are still active. You can still pitch in. And we have a really cool um, prize pack we've been soliciting from our guests to give away. So um, please, please do that. And maybe you'll see me on there on a future date, and you'll yes. see Corey. You'll see Corey breaking my spirit in front of uh, in front of all you film nerds like myself. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on today. This was an absolute blast. I want to thank everybody for listening, and ask that you tune in next time, where myself and a very special guest are finally, finally, going to come face to face with Michael Z. Wolfman. Wowie. Fitting that a scene as dense as this one gets an episode just as concrete heavy. And don't expect things to get any easier. Up next is Doc's journey into the heart of darkness with a certain real estate big shot where answers are few and questions are many. Namely, where the fuck is Shasta? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.